<clears throat> no, it's not written down. It's, no, yeah, yeah, go ahead. It's not written down here <laughs> at Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good-old days of World Championship Wrestling Series by Series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I was joined by a series of WCW referees who were all unfortunately knocked unconscious in rapid succession, leaving me with Alec Bridgen. See, what I did was I didn't come out. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't punch me. How's it going tonight, Al? Good. How's it going with you? It's it's going good. You done uh, lugging all the unconscious referees outside to the yard yet? Uh, Dellinger can take care of that for me. <laughs> all right. Well, we have finished our fifth series, Hog and or Road Wild. It was definitely an interesting, unique series with a very different and exciting atmosphere, mm-hmm. at least for the first year. Yeah. For me, at least it got a little monotonous as the, uh, as the series went on. It gets a bit samey, yeah. But tonight... We're going to take a look back over the Hog and Road Wilds, play some guessing games, and hand out some awards. So I hope you'll have fun listening and play along with us. To start us off, let's cover some statistics on the overall uh, shows in the series. Okay. The Hog slash Road Wilds series ran from 1996 to 1999, covering a total of four shows under two different names. So, Al, what do you think the top... Road Wild or Hog Wild in terms of pay-per-view buys was? Hmm. I feel like just because how business is going, it's got to be 98. Okay. In second place was Road Wild 1999 with 200,000. Really? Huh. Still pretty strong considering yeah. a 1999 show, right? Right, yeah. And in first is Road Wild 1998. You got it right. With 322,000. Gotcha. And, of course, in the bottom, we have uh, second from last is Road Wild 1997 with 180,000. And the uh, lowest was Hog Wild 1996, first show of the series with 155,000, which is still not actually no. bad for 96. You think maybe people didn't realize it was a wrestling show with that name? <laughs> it's entirely possible. I guess it's one of those hog wrestling shows I heard about. <laughs> in a first for us. The entire series took place at the same location, that being the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally in Sturgis, South Dakota. Yeah, true. That said, there was some variation in attendance. So, Al, what do you think was the best attended show? Um, I feel like it's probably... I'll go with 97, I guess. Okay, you are close. Okay. 97 is in second place, with 6,500 people recorded in attendance. Yeah, okay. And... 98, again, is in first place, with 8,500 in attendance. Gotcha. And the bottom two, we have uh, second from last is Road Wild 1999, with 5,500. And in last place is Hog Wild 1996, again, with 5,000. Again, given it's the first time, you don't have something to build off of. So yeah, fair yeah. It's, it's fair to expect a first show of the series to kind of not do as well, necessarily, in, in that case. Right. And as we, I believe, noted on the series, uh, I'm not entirely sure how they got these counts since they weren't issuing tickets and 
<laughs> charging people for this one anyway. But well, they had copious amounts of helicopter shots to gauge. This, this is true. This is true. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's why they did them for you. It's also kind of interesting that the shows switched dance partners after the pay-per-view numbers there. Yeah. They're paired differently. That's <laughs> true, yeah. The shows had similar match counts. Hogwild 1996 had eight matches, and all three Roadwilds had nine. So for once, we got a series that was reasonable in match count, mm-hmm. if not match quality, all series long. So the stats out of the way, let's have a talk about the overall series. We like to kind of look back at the end of a series and take a look back over what are some repeated themes or elements that we can call the show's identity. So was there anything you kind of identified on that front, Al? Yeah, I've got a few. Uh, Most obvious, of course, is the whole biker aspect. Mm -hmm. You have the bikes, you've got the bikers. They really try to build throughout the shows the crowd interaction. You know, heels will yell at the bikers, so they'll rev at them, and faces will do the little revving motion. So that's an obvious theme there. Plus, the visual you have, obviously, especially with the early shows, before they start adding extra seating for non-bikers. Right. You have this, you know, the sea of bikers. Oh, the, the sea of heads, they say in 96. <laughs> yes, yes. The sea of heads. Yeah, Dusty's sea of heads. Yes. <laughs> that's the biggest one, obviously, because that's supposed to be the appeal of this show, is you're seeing this thing that you don't normally see. Mm-hmm. Normally, it's guys holding up signs and wearing their awesome 316 shirts, which the People will, I'm sure, love cutting away from on camera, but <laughs> we're definitely wearing at this time period, for sure. Yes. Uh, second theme I have is, of course, outdoor wrestling. Mm-hmm. Even this day in 2022, we don't really see a lot of that. I think the main reason is you can't really control the weather, as we right. in Florida recently learned, quite evidently. Yes, yes. Weather is very controllable. I remember one year with WrestleMania, they were in a place with an open dome. I think it was, it was a retractable dome. And this question of, like, can they keep the dome open? Or will it suddenly start raining on them? And even so, even that's not a fully outdoor show. It's just a hole they can close yeah. or open. And this is real drama of whether they can do it or not. So imagine doing four shows in a row in this big open area where they really can't cover it at all. And yeah, they amazingly had good weather every year, which is kind yeah. of surprising. I mean, you'd figure, you know, at least probability would be against that happening. Yeah, you would think one of them would have, have to be stopped for rain. I mean, baseball games have that problem all the time, yeah. Yeah, because I would imagine you if it starts raining in an outdoor wrestling show, that'd be a very, very dangerous thing. Yeah. There's a famous case in the, I want to say early 80s, maybe mid-80s, where they do a rare house show in Puerto Rico. This is like in the rock and wrestling phase. Mm -hmm. Apparently there's a torrential rainstorm. Oh, jeez. So they try to keep the show going as long as possible. Poor Girl Monsoon is the ring announcer and sole commentator for the whole show. There's a great visual of him with a tarp just laid over his head, sitting in a chair trying to call the show. Oh, poor guy. And you see people like slipping and sliding in the ring. Oh. Third thing I have is the rise and fall of the NWO. Obviously, coming off of the intro to this show, we as we covered, we had the big attack on Nitro Angle with them. 96's show is sort of their full rise to power. Mm-hmm. Hogan winning the title is supposed to be the big thing that changes everything. And even though there's no title on the line, the importance of the Sting Luger versus the Outsiders match is there. Right. Plays yep. well. Yep. As you go throughout the show, in 97, you see how strong they are. Even losing going into it, Luger win the title. It's about them getting the power back mm-hmm. and sort of holding the power they can, like winning via DQ to keep the tag tiles and such. 98, there's still a factor, but it's definitely less mm-hmm. because the fact that they're 
pretty much all thrown into one match. Right. Yeah. In a big ball and all fed to Goldberg, essentially. You only look at the same group that was taking out 20 people backstage in Orlando. Right. Right. Yeah. There's a drastically different feel at that point. You can tell it's a decline. And it's really summed up in 99 show because you have two of the three big faces of the group going into this fighting over each other. Whoever loses is forced to retire. Giant air quotes, obviously. Yeah. I would argue that if anything can be counted as the true end of the original NWO angle, it might actually be that show. Mm -hmm. Because that is the point where they are killing it so dead that one of the members of the group is kicking the other founding member of the group out of the company. Yes, exactly. We've been thinking, like, where is the the final end of the original NWO? And that's probably it. Yeah. Because they, they lose Hogan both in the fact that he turns face. Yeah. And also the fact that the feud is even over their history together. They try to build up the right. last minute about how Nash wanted to be the top person the whole time, and then Hogan was. And correct me if I'm wrong, but like even in the video package leading up to that match, they are still wearing that combination in the UO shirt. Correct. So like that's clearly still going on up until yeah. Road Wild 1990. It's about, yeah, it's the Nitro before Road Wild, where they have Hogan physically come out to the rescue wearing his red and yellow first. Yeah. Which feels like something they really should have saved for the show itself, by the way. It's another case of how they put the importance on Nitro and Thunder. Yeah, yeah. And less on pay-per-views when people are paying you to watch. Yeah. Because you could tease, like, he's got, is, will he come out? Which which version will you see? We've well, already seen that version come out. So when you see him again... We know, yeah, right. we know it's going to be that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> it is kind of funny to think about, though, that, as we just said, that's probably the official end of the original NWO angle. And it's like, what, four months before they just create a new version of the NWO yes, again. correct. Admittedly, that goes nowhere, but... Yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I do want to note, by the way, I have that one on there with the exact same title, The Rise and Fall of the NWO, is right on mine as well. <laughs> I will say on mine, due to, to words autocorrect, I have The Rise and Fall of the Now. <laughs> because I'm insisted upon writing it the way it's written on the shirts which is the right, little ant yeah. big W, and it always thinks, I, I mean, now. <laughs> That's great. It even changes the first N to capitalize. Like, oh, come on, leave me alone. I can't, it's not a spelling thing. I can't correct that. It just yeah. does that every time. <laughs> a little peek behind the curtain there for you. Speaking of rise and falls, I have my fourth theme, the rise and fall of Sting's importance. Okay. The 96, again, we're just starting the NWO angle. We have Sting and Luger as sort of the gatekeepers alongside the Giant, mm -hmm. trying to keep them from getting power and getting a foothold. And the fact that they can't win due to ridiculous chicanery, as we see on the show, is a big thing. And it, it leads into the next show where, of course, the whole thing with the fake Sting and then him leaving and setting up a crow Sting. Right. Then we have the peak in 97 where, even though he's not even on the show... Is seeming presence is a big deal. Right, yeah. They even use the legend of Sting. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, the legend of Sting, yeah. So even we have a we have a fake Sting coming out, that's the peak. It's weirdly the peak again, he's not on the show, but his legend is there. Yeah. Which I guess is an indicator of just how important you yeah. are at that point. If true. If you're so important that the show main event effectively revolves around you even though you're not there, that's true. That's a pretty darn important person. Yeah. Like we have Slamboree where Hogan's not on the show. Or my thing, my big Spring Stampede, movie. I think it is. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's because of what we watch. them. we watch Spring Stampede, <laughs> then Slam, and they're both S shows. And the, yeah, there's a lot of and the, I think it's carryover. But anyways, that show, how you covered before, has the Fatal Four Way match 
with the infamous Booker T promo in the buildup. Yes. Always worth remembering. Where it's all about someone is going to fight Hogan eventually. Hogan's not even on this show officially. Right. And that's how important he is. It's someone will fight him eventually. So that's the story. Right. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so going for Sting. So he's peaked in 97. A year after that, not only as the whole thing where he supposedly vanquished Hogan, haha, that really stuck, thing happened, but he's joined the NWO Wolfpack, and he's just part of this giant ball of humanity in the semi-main event match, Yeah, Nash and Luger and everything else. I believe we talked about it during the match, that it's like he basically vanishes in that match. Yeah. And you're just like, when's the last time you were able to say that about Sting, that exactly. you don't even notice him? Yes. And 99, while he is important, obviously, he's given a, a high-profile slot of the show. Storyline-wise, he's basically just there to fight Sid Vicious and build up Sid Vicious for Magic against Goldberg. Yeah, the focus is clearly on the Vicious versus Goldberg build-up. Yeah. You know, Sting is a notable person for him to beat on the way to that. Sting is not the focus of this. Sid right, Vicious exactly. is the focus of this. Yeah. And oddly, the guy that Sting did all his work trying to get out of the company because he's evil and he's corrupting everything is the conquering hero at the end of the same show. It's true, yeah. He's not even important on. Uh, oh, I don't take this one from you, but the other one I have is, of course, the transition from, air quote, face Hogan on 96 show. Yes. Where the biker crowd is not informed that Hogan is a bad guy now, or just doesn't care. Either one's possible, honestly. Yeah, yeah. And going through the show, he's definitely a bad guy in 97. He's definitely a bad guy in 98. But then, like I said, abruptly... He's now a good guy and resorted to his look back in 94 when he first came into the company. Right, which is what he was on the poster for 96, but yes. didn't show up on the show at 96 in that outfit. Yeah. It would be great if the 99 poster had him and Heel Hogan on there, just a really. That would be awesome. Yeah, together. just do full circle. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that'd be great. I believe you proposed for the 96 show that the, what they should have done was uh, when the show got close, have the uh, poster that showed normal Hogan just like spray painted over with the NWO logo. Yeah. What they should have done then is do the 99 show, have a poster that had Heel Hogan, mm-hmm. Hollywood Hogan on there, and spray paint over it with WCW. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just like switch up the whole thing. That'd be good, yeah. Oh, I think that's some pretty good uh, coverage of themes. You found a few that went across the whole series, which mm-hmm. that was something I honestly kind of struggled with on it. Yeah. There's a lot of minor themes throughout the series that connect one or two shows, but... Sure. It takes a little more effort to find a unified theme, I think. It was not easy. <laughs> As you pointed out, one of the obvious unified ones is the show design, the the biker concept. Though, as we discussed in the individual show discussions, it's astonishing how little that actually gets used yeah. in the show content. Mm-hmm. We get precisely one match with an actual motorcycle theme in the entire series. That's Medusa versus Bull Nakano. Correct. And then the Steiners come in on motorcycles for one match, and they give away a motorcycle on the 99 show. But other than that, it's really just the crowd, the engine revving, the set, whatever that weird horn noise was that came up yeah, all the time. Sounds like a Vuvuzela, but I don't think it is. <laughs> and some shots of the motorcycle rally or maybe a road trip video. And even that they only do for like the first couple shows. Yeah, the, you got a lengthy 196 and like a no- very, very brief 197. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and of course, the accursed shaky helicopter footage, which yeah. I will never forget. And in fact, on the bike theme, as you probably mentioned before... It takes till 98 show where they get the nice road right. map to the yeah. ring and no one drives a bike down it. Yeah, they finally get the <laughs> they finally get the set right on the second to last show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's enough to give the series a unique identity or an atmosphere, but it still feels really underused. Right. 
As far as uh, thematic link in terms of the show's stories, one thing I really found myself coming back to was the idea of crushed hopes. Mm. Uh, to clarify, not my hopes of getting good matches, though the latter shows certainly did crush those more than once. For sure, yes. No, um, what I mean is, as a story point that features very strongly in the first two shows, on both 96 and 97, a very strong WCW has a chance to take down the NWO. Mm-hmm. On 96, it's to stop it before it even really acquires any power. Right. And on 97, it's to wipe it out after having achieved a notable victory against it the week before and shaken the hold that it had on the wrestling world. Yeah. In 96, as you point out, they've got the massive power of the giant on their side, and of course, Sting and Luger, who could never lose to the NWO upstarts. Right. But the NWO comes out on top and even defaces the big gold belt. Mm-hmm. And on 97, WCW finally has the NWO on the back foot after a year of suffering indignity after indignity. Mm-hmm. They finally reclaim their world title, cleaned it up, and can take down the NWO once and for all. And it all comes crashing down when the NWO retain the tag belts and reclaim the world title and deface it once again. Yeah. So on both shows, we have WCW at a high point and the NWO either just starting out or very weakened, and yet WCW falls and the NWO ascends. True, yeah. It's a bit more of a stretch to apply that theme to the rest of the series, though there's certainly some matches or segments that apply. Yeah, more than just the generic, this guy wanted to win a match that didn't, that applies to basically every match ever. Right. The NWO Invitational Battle Royale is set up to determine which NWO member is the best, and ends with none of them, as Goldberg chucks out almost the entire group himself. Yes. Rick Steiner's dream of getting revenge on his brother, and ours of seeing Steiner versus Steiner, is cruelly ripped away mm-hmm. when the match is called on account of faked but somehow still verified injury. <laughs> it's very revealing, yes. <laughs> but beyond that, it's a bit of a stretch, so I don't think we can call that a theme that stretches easily across all of the shows, but it's definitely at least a repeated theme for part of the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, you pointed out quite excellently my uh, my second theme, which is the rise and fall of the NWO. Right. I think you covered that one quite well really interesting that we basically get something very close to their beginning and pretty much the best thing that you could call their ending on the same series. That's true, yeah. I didn't think of that before we started watching the shows, but yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, Another theme that I think kind of came across fairly frequently was the theme of sacrifice. Hmm. We get multiple stories on the series of people either putting things on the line beyond what would normally be necessary for a match— or otherwise putting themselves at greater risk than the norm. So, for instance, we have the Battle of the Bikes in 1996, where the competitors' motorcycles are offered up for destruction. We have Hogan versus Nash on 99, where it's career versus career. Right. Ice Train versus Scott Norton and Mysterio versus Conan. In both of those, the face risks severe injury by competing already hurt mm-hmm. in an effort to get revenge on the heel. You could argue it's also the theme of Goldberg versus Rick Steiner with the knee brace theme. Yeah. It's subverted somewhat by Savage versus Rodman, which is about Savage's unwillingness to sacrifice or risk Gorgeous George, even in pictorial form. Mm-hmm. And then again, Savage and Rodman's combined willingness to sacrifice several referees for victory. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe Leno kind of sort of has the Tonight Show on the line or something like that. Not clear that, that was an actual yeah thing going on. At the very least, Bischoff seems to think it's on the line. True. One last minor theme that shows up. The power of experience. Mm. Repeatedly on the series, a younger wrestler gets a shot against a veteran performer, puts up a good fight, at least in story, but goes down. We see that with Ice Train versus Scott Norton, 
Eddie Guerrero versus Ric Flair, Six versus Ric Flair, Giant versus Hogan, Rodman versus Savage, and to some extent even with Page versus Hennig or the Deadpool versus Kidman, Mysterio, and Guerrero, the uh, ICP being the rookies in that case. Right. Each of those is somewhat of a showcase match for either a rookie or at least a performer trying to rise to the top, where they get to do well against the veteran fighter, but ultimately do go down. Mm-hmm. There's also a clear generational contest, if not outright rookie involvement, with Nash versus Hogan, where again, the more veteran wrestler wins the day. Right. You could also probably slip in the Buff Bagwell match with Ernest Miller as well. That's true. Yeah, yeah. They don't sell Buff Bagwell as a veteran performer, but he's been there for like close to a decade at that yeah. point. And in fact, we're less than a year from him being called, quote, a new blood of company. <laughs> yes, which is still very strange. Now, so yeah, the only story that surprisingly subverts that is 97 you get giant versus savage i was gonna say the same thing yep yep yeah actually a few counter arguments we get giant versus savage that you pointed out where giant decimates him yeah and then we also get goldberg versus most of both nwo factions that one also features a relative rookie in the form of Goldberg, True, yeah. decimating several veteran performers in, among the NWO factions. We've got Kurt Hennig in there. We've got Sting. Uh, Luger's in there. Yeah. Conan's quite experienced as well. Scott Hall, Kevin Nash. Yeah, yeah. So I think the only guy in there that I can think of off the top of my head that has similar experience level to Goldberg is Giant. True, yeah. And, of course, there is Leno's match where his inexperience in the ring is certainly built up as a major part of the storyline, and he ends up getting the pinfall, though that does feel less due to his own efforts and more due to those of his band leader, so uh, it's not quite the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had some real trouble on this one finding a uh, unifying theme, really. That was an interesting exercise, (laughs) beyond, of course, the obvious biker show feel that they do go for him but don't really utilize. Mm -hmm. I I think, though, we both identified some smaller themes that definitely come up a lot over the course of the series. And you can certainly draw some thematic links across shows in significant ways, sometimes even across every show. So I feel like this is one where there might not be one big theme like we've been able to identify in some earlier series. Right. But there's certainly a lot of smaller thematic links to detect. I can see that, yeah. You have any other thoughts you want to bring up on just the overall series as a whole, whether themes or just your thoughts on how it went? Uh, just again, just reiterate, it's kind of weird how little the bike stuff really matters for the biker show. Mm-hmm. You really think they would lean, especially after the first show, they would lean into that and really done more biker stuff, knowing it before this crowd. The most you really get is like brief bits where like heel Chris Jericho talks about a Japanese bike to get sort of get heat. Yeah, yeah. Stuff like that, or... Really, just that's the only way that works is they, they reference Japanese motorcycles just to make Harley guys mad. Which, which bizarrely, then Tony just like references offhand the next year without it being intended to be a insult or anything. Yes. That he's like, they came here on their Hondas. And you're like, did Tony just turn heel? Yes. <laughs> but no one reacts to it. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting series, I think, overall. Um, it definitely, as I said in the intro, it has a very unique feel to it but because there's four shows that all use that feel it starts to grate on you a little bit mm-hmm. and i think you and i had a discussion off tape that we, we need to start learning to save these for on the air i think yeah but, um where you were saying you wondered if the fact that we watched 
this series just straight through only this series rather than having an actual right. uh, series of shows between each one of them strengthen that effect. Sure. You know, and, and I, I think I would agree. I, I don't think I would have felt it as strongly as a repetitive series if it weren't for the fact that we were watching it straight through. Right. If we actually watched, you know, a year's worth of shows between each one of them, I'd be like, oh, hey, it's time for us to come back to the kind of neat outdoor show atmosphere. Right. It's kind of like if you're when you're a kid, and all the stuff you can do in summer, like going to Disney or going on these places you go, whatever park or event you would go to, you can go between you know, June and August. And because you only go during that time period, your mind goes, ooh, I can't wait till this date so I can do this. Right. But realistically, like if you were like independently wealthy at like 16 for some, some reason, and you could just do whatever you wanted, and you went to Disney like once a week, you'd be like, I've already done everything here already, like four times. Yeah. And you stop going for a while. Yeah. Things would get dull after a while. You, you kind of, you've seen it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I can see your point on that. Yeah. I think definitely an, an interesting series to do overall, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, we had a look at the stats for the wild series, but now let's take a look at some interesting data that I've gathered on the performers. Who appeared on the shows. So you're ready to test your memory, Al? Never. <laughs> Never ready. There's a reason I asked the questions, because I would not remember this stuff either. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So first up, who appeared as a competitor in the most matches? Any guesses? Hmm. So, I mean, you have certain people that were on every show. Like uh, Hogan, obviously, is the most obvious one. Mm -hmm. He made events every show in the series. That's because we'll go over a bit. Besides him, I'm going to try to think this. Of the big names, Sting doesn't wrestle in 97. He's covered. He's not even on 97 yep. officially. You have Luger on all four. Actually, no, we don't have Luger on. on do we have Luger on the 99th show? He is not in a match on 99. I didn't think so. Yeah, I was like, wait a second. They said that. I realized this. Luger is not on all four shows. He's on the first three. So he's filling in for Sting and then gone when Sting is back. Right. It's like a trade-off situation, I guess. <laughs> You want me to tell you how many people there are? Sure. Okay, there are four people in first place. Okay. So there's four people with four matches each. Okay. And Hogan, you're right, is one of them. Yeah, Hogan's definitely on there. Uh, Nash is on all four shows. Mm -hmm. I to remember if Hall's on all four. That's... No, Hall's not involved in the last show. Right. That, yeah, so he's not in it. Oh, well, I know one, one who is definitely on all four is Rey Mysterio. Yep, you got three of them. Okay. Got a guess for the fourth? Is Benoit on all four shows? He is not. Well, you got close. You got three of them, all right? Okay. So you're ready to hear it? Sure. So in third place, we have a 12-way tie <laughs> of people with two matches each. We have Buff Bagwell, Ric Flair, Goldberg, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Jericho, Canyon, Conan, Mongo, Saturn, Randy Savage, Scott Steiner, and Alex Wright. And to clarify, this is uh, appearances as a match competitor. Right. In second place, we have an 11-way tie <laughs> with three matches each is Chris Benoit, Booker T, The Giant, Scott Hall, Kurt Hennig, Lex Luger, Dean Malenko, Scott Flash Norton, DDP, Rick Steiner, and Sting. Okay. And in first place, with a four-way tie with four matches each, Hulk Hogan, right. Rey Mysterio Jr., uh -huh. Kevin Nash, right. and Stevie Ray. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that opening tag match is completely for forgotten by me. 
Yep, yep. I talked about that when, when I was trying to pick best and worst of people in the show. Like, I forgot that the second Buff Bagwell match, because it's just not that memorable. That's that's not a, not a name you expect to hear in, with the others. I don't have a problem with Stevie yeah. Ray, but it's just, I was looking at that and thinking, that is a shocker. Yeah, no, that, I say that does make sense. I for, Yeah. And because he's involved in that weird sort of match with Chavo. That, that's the one that had slipped my mind, because I remembered the ones where he's teaming with Booker. Right. But then true. I'd forgotten, oh, right, he has a singles match on a show that Booker doesn't have one. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but that's matches overall. So you've already said this one. Okay, yeah. The competitor in the most main events, your guess was? Hulk Hogan. Right. So again, in this case, we're only counting actual main events, the final aired match of the show. Right. Not... Ones that their announcers randomly declare main events midway through the show. No, uh, no kiss demon matches that are right. all main events. Yes. So in second place, we have a six-way tie. A whole bunch of people had one main event. Mm-hmm. That would be Eric Bischoff, The Giant, Lex Luger, Kevin Nash, Diamond Dallas Page, and Jay Leno. Yes. I believe you're re- legally required to say it that way. Yes. And in first place, with four main events, the only guy on the series to be in more than one main event, and in every single main event on the series, is Hollywood and non-Hollywood, Hulk Hogan. Yes. <laughs> well, I th- to clarify, I think he's still Hollywood Hogan in 99. He's just Hollywood Florida Hogan, <laughs> not Hollywood Los Angeles. A show isn't just about competitors, though. There are all sorts of other roles to fill. So next up, the commentary team. So the most matches called by commentator. Who do you think? Oh, Shivani's on all four shows for sure. Mm-hmm. I think this is thankfully one of the series where Heaton is on all four. Mm-hmm. Sadly, we don't get very much Dusty. We get Dusty in the first show. Tanae, I believe Tanae is on... He's on two of the shows, right? If I remember correctly, I believe so. Yeah, and Dusty's actually on two of them as well. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah you're right. I, for, I forgot it's technically before that. It's '98 when he does bizarre, his, his weird, ill-advised NWO turn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I still insist they should have had him on the commentary table anyway. Heel Dusty on commentary would have been awesome. That would have been. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you ready to hear it? Sure. In third place, with 17 matches called, the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. In second place, with 21 matches called, just a little bit ahead of Dusty, Iron Mike Tanay. Right. And in first place, it's a tie. That, like, never happens. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> with 35 matches called, Bobby the Brain Heenan and Tony, no nickname, Shivani. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a rare thing for Tony to be sharing first place on that one. Normally, there's at least some minor switch up in the announce crew that prevents someone from staying there for all of the shows. Yeah. But it's because this one doesn't go to 2000. Yes. That's why I realized is this, this yeah. series goes to 99 and Heenan's still there. So it sits perfectly in the Heenan period. Thank where there's no Mark Madden. Thank goodness. Yes. So what about managers? This is one of your nemesis it is, <laughs> questions, yeah. I believe, on this. Very much so, yeah. Who managed people for the most matches? So, remembering managers, I know we have Ted DiBiase, but you get for the one, really the one mm-hmm. match, but this big match. Sonny Ono pops up a bunch of times. Really, he, he bookends the series because he's on 96 
I can't remember if he does this in 97 or 98, but he definitely, obviously, on 99, a big role with uh, Ernest Miller there. Oh, obviously, what I'm missing is uh, Jimmy Hart, the mouse itself. Okay. He was a, a few times. I don't know exact number on him, though. All right. You have named a lot of people who are on this list. Okay. But you do not have number one. Okay. So, in third place, we have a three-way tie with two matches each. Woman. Ah, right. Vincent. Yeah. And Jimmy Hart. Yeah. In second place, with three matches, is Sonny Ono. Mm-hmm. Good, reliable choice for frequent manager appearance after yeah. his uh, Starcade run. Absolutely, yeah. And in first place, with four, Elizabeth. Oh, yeah. She is all over this series, actually. <laughs> Next up, referees. So who refereed the most matches? And note that I'm counting any referee appearance here. That means whether they're initial assigned ref, they come out to replace the ref, or they come out to rectify a call. Well, right or wrong, the safest bet is almost always Nick Patrick. Okay. In third place, we have a tie with four each. We have Randy Anderson and Mark Curtis. In second place, another tie with six each is Mickey J and Scott Dickinson. Mm-hmm. And in first place, indeed, with eight appearances is Nick Patrick. Gotcha. Now, if you only count initial referee appearances, Nick Patrick, Scott Dickinson, Mickey J, and Johnny Boone, who was tied for fourth, all lose one replacement referee appearance, all from Rodman versus Savage. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> that changes the top three not at all, as every place was two apart from the last. Gotcha. And of course, we have one unusual name on the referee list this time as well, Dean Malenko. Ah, yes. We've talked a lot about the people with a ton of appearances, but what about the people with the fewest? So, there are 42 people who only show up for a single match in any capacity on Hogger Road Wild. Of the 42, three of them actually took home Match of the Night honors as competitors for their single appearance. We have Juventud Guerrera, Psychosis, and Ultimo Dragon. Oh, yeah. But some other interesting people on the list include Barry and Kendall Wyndham. Yeah. Billy Kidman, mm-hmm. Sid Vicious, Medusa, Bull Nakano, and of course, Jay Leno. Yeah. <laughs> Last but not least, let's look at who's taken home the coveted Match of the Night and MVP awards. So first up for each host... Who took home the most MVP awards? Once again, neither of us gave an MVP award to the same person twice. That's interesting how that worked out. So I want you to see how much of our list you can guess. So first up for yours, I'm going to give you six guesses to guess four right. Okay. How many of your four MVPs can you name in six guesses? I feel like DDP has got to be one. I must have given DDP. He is one, ding. Yeah, okay. I definitely gave one to Ray. I'm pretty sure I did. You did not, so that's oh, one wrong. Gotcha. I used to give one to Ray. Uh, I'm surprised. It's, it's a good guess. It's a yeah, good no, guess. it's a pretty solid guess for me, honestly. I feel like Benoit, again, Benoit's usually a solid pick. He's another one, no. Gotcha. Hmm. Got to nail the rest of them. You got three to go and, <laughs> and three guesses left. Oh, geez. No pressure. <laughs> yeah, it's you think I remember my own stuff better. It's a lot of stuff that happens. Yeah, I don't know. Normally, I'd say Sting, but I don't think I have a chance to win. Sting. Unless I give it to him. 
Oh, I'll try to give him for uh, ninety nine for him managing to try really hard against Sid Vicious. Yeah, yeah. I figured it had to be if I gave it a woman ninety nine or maybe ninety six. Yeah, I couldn't remember if I did or not. Did I give it to Savage at any point? You did. Ah, there we go. I believe for his selflessness on the giant match. That makes sense. So the one you are missing is from nineteen ninety six. Of course, that's be the the least recent one. Right. <laughs> that's how that works out. Who would I give it in ninety six? Man. I give it to Dragon, maybe? I know I liked his match. No, uh, someone who fights with a similar style, though. Eddie Guerrero. Ah, of course. You got three of them, though. That's that's good. Did a good run. More than I, more than I thought I'd get. Yeah. You ready to see if you, uh, again, do better on guessing mine? Yeah, sure. All right, six guesses, four different people. DDP. Uh, yes, that's one. I think you picked uh, Jericho, didn't you, one time? Uh, no, I definitely got close to, but I, I did okay, not. Okay, I can't remember you gave Jericho for uh, like his heel work. You gave it to Malenko, though? I did, yes. Right, okay, they're a free thing. Did you ever give Luger one? I don't think he did. Uh, no, I did not. Oh, okay. I don't think you gave it to Benoit, although he's definitely in the no, running. I did not. How many do I have? You've got one guess left and two names to go. But <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Okay. All right, well, you got two of them, though. Okay. So I did do Dean Malenko and DDP. I also did Sting. Oh, right. And Scott Hall. Okay. So... Based off of that, who do you think got the most MVPs overall? There, I will let you know there's two of them that got picked twice. Well, Sting, uh, I know Sting came up twice. He's one of them. Um, that, okay, I'm trying to, I, I didn't get, because I didn't give it to Hall at any point. Now that I don't like Hall, it just never came up properly. Yeah, for me. yeah. I mean, you got one person you can give it to each show. It's not like yeah, it's an insult if you don't get it. Oh, no, I got you. <laughs> and I never gave it to Malenko. Got to go that way, Malenko. I might give him at some point, but not in this series anyway. Right. So who's that one then? Okay. So in second place, with one choice each, we have Eddie Guerrero, Scott Hall, Dean Malenko, and Randy Savage. Mm-hmm. And in first place, with two choices each, we have Sting and Diamond Dallas Page. Solid choices there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Two very dependable performers. Mm-hmm. All right. Ready for match of the night participations? And we are looking only at competitors here. In this case... There is a clear winner for each of us. So who do you think competed in your match of the night choices the most, Al? Ray definitely pops up for sure with me. Yep. He is actually your winner with three awards from you. Nice. And who do you think was my winner, my match of the night winner most often? I want to say Sting. That is actually not the case. It is Chris Benoit with two choices from Oh, me right, because the... Uh, I forgot the, the lengthy match he has on... Benoit Malenko and then yeah. Benoit Page on the last show. Right, right. That makes sense. Yeah. And finally, who do you think competed in the most matches of the night? Assembling all of our votes together. The DDP? Because I, I, I picked him for sure a couple times. No, he is on the list, but he's right. not in first. In third place, it's a tie with one vote from each of us for a total of two for each person here is Conan... And Diamond Dallas Page. Oh, right, because the Conan Bray match, yeah. Yeah, we both like that one, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then in second, with one vote from you and two votes from me, for a total of three, is Chris Benoit. Mm -hmm. And in first, with three votes from you and one vote from me, for a total of four, Rey Mysterio Jr. Oh, there you go. With the stats for the Hog and Road Wild shows done, how about we take a look back at the overall stats again? 
So these stats cover every wrestling show that we have yet covered. So not including Ready to Rumble. Okay. Because that is far from a wrestling show. (laughs) Yeah. Appearances as a match competitor overall. Who do you think is in first place? Sting is even missing a match on this series has a good record overall for sure. Okay. He piles up early in Starcade and that helps him a lot. Right. In third place, with 30 appearances as a match competitor, we have Lex Luger. Mm -hmm. In second place, with 34, we have Ric Flair. Okay. And in first place, with 38 match competitor appearances so far, this is Sting. The standings there have not actually changed since last time. Oh, okay. But appearances as a match competitor in main events. What's your guess? I mean, again, Sting, for the most part, stuck to main event matches. Early issue, the Starcade run, you know, him and Flair have that match, and obviously him and not Flair until the end have a match the other show. <laughs> yeah. It's so weird thinking that Hogan is not in the running for this at this point, just because of the way the series we've covered and what we've covered in the order in. Because he's like the face of the main event of WCW, and he's not really in there yet. Yeah, yeah, that is that is interesting. Yeah, I'm going with Sting. You're going with Sting? Yeah. Okay. In third place, a name that just came up, actually, with nine main event appearances because he added four in this series, Hulk Hogan. Yeah. So he just lunged up the ratings there. There you go. In second place, with 13 main event appearances, is Sting. Okay. And in first place, with 18 main event appearances, still having a ton of them from his initial Starcade run that has made him uh, thus far unbeatable, Ric Flair. Right. Yeah, because he had no main events in this series at all. Right. Which is surprising in a number of ways, but yeah. Uh, Hogan got, as I noted, four more main events in this series, so he knocked Vader out of third place. Oh. Vader is now tied for fourth with Diamond Dallas Page, with six of them each. And also, <laughs> and also, thanks to us doing that one Nitro from July 1996, Greg the Hammer Valentine is now on the <laughs> list with one main event, too. So good for him. <laughs> so Greg is tied with Jay Leno? <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Commentators. Now, first place is probably obvious. Can you guess one, two, and three? I mean, Shivani obviously is number one. Yes. I feel like number two's got to be Heenan. Okay. Especially because this series helping with being in all four. Because, yeah, you really, you really lose him on 2,000 shows. I mean, thankfully, for a number of reasons, thankfully, I haven't covered a lot of 2,000 shows yet. Yeah. Then, I feel like, hmm. I know Tanae's moved up a bit, but I feel like maybe it's still Dusty as third. I'm not sure on that one. All right. Uh, you got one and two correct. Okay. Uh, we'll go through this in order. Number three, with 104 matches covered as commentator, is Jim Ross. Good oh, player. right, yeah. He didn't get any new matches this series, but he has quite a number from earlier in WCW, and we just happened to have covered a number of those shows. Gotcha. In second place, with 172 matches covered so far, Bobby the Brain Heenan. Nice. And in first place, with 271 matches covered, wow. 99 more matches than Heenan, unsurprisingly, Tony Schiavone. Right. Referees. Looking at all referee appearances. Again, whether they were the initial ref, came out to correct a decision, or came out as a replacement when one got knocked loopy. Mm-hmm. Who do you think's in the lead? I think it's still Nick Patrick. Okay. 
You have a guess for second place? Oh, um, hmm. I, I, I'm trying to think. I can't think of completely blank on the name now. Um, Nikki J, maybe? He's pretty solid in that. All right. You uh, you did get someone that's on the list. Okay. But uh, not quite in second place yet. In third place is Mickey J. Okay. With 27 appearances, he has now replaced Mike Atkins, who stayed at 24. Yeah. Uh, though Atkins actually did drop to fifth place, as Charles Robinson is now in fourth. Oh, right. With 26. Okay. In second place, quite a bit higher, actually, than Mickey J., with 62 appearances as a referee so far, is Randy Anderson. Mm. Another reliable performer for the era that we happen to have covered so far. Yeah, it makes sense. And in first place, still in the lead by quite a bit, with 87 referee appearances, is Nick Patrick. Gotcha. Better watch it, though. Randy Anderson is coming up on him. <laughs> <laughs> the top three positions don't change if we use only initial referee appearances. Mickey J loses one replacement appearance to hit 26, but Robinson loses two of them to hit 24, matching Mike Atkins. Anderson loses one replacement and one rectifying appearance to hit 60, and Patrick loses four replacement ref appearances to hit 83. I will say one referee leads the stat of most matches they competed in, though, because I think we only have the one. I believe so far we've only had Charles Robinson do that, right? Correct. Yeah. Now, um, Nick Patrick will join him on the list at some time. Yes, he will. I don't remember what series that's actually for. I don't recall either. I want to say it's overall, but I'm not percent sure. All right. MVP choices again, Al. So first up, we're going by host. So Al, for you, who have you chosen the most for MVP across all of the shows? I feel like Sting has got my top choice because he, even when shows got bad, like I got, I enjoy Sting for one reason or another. All right, you are correct. You have chosen Sting eight times. No, oh, okay, nice. And for me. I feel like it's got to be DDP or Flair. I'm trying to remember which one I think would be. Maybe lean slightly more towards DDP in that case. Okay, that's definitely a good choice. But I am actually uh, joining you this time. I, again, have Sting with five choices. Oh, okay. And for John, it was Dusty Rhodes with three. I'm not going to make you try and remember John's this time. Okay, good. <laughs> so now, for all of us together, John included. Okay. Who do you think got the most MVP awards? I feel like it's probably still Sting. I know I can't remember uh, how John voted a lot for that, but uh, he he's obviously a big Sting fan. All right. In third place, with five awards from the group collectively, is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Right. He got his nice and early. Too. Yeah. He tended to get agreement from us when he got it. So yeah. In second place, it's a tie with eight awards each: Ric Flair and Diamond Dallas Page. And in first place, this is Sting. 15 MVP awards put him far out in front. And finally, let's look at match of the night competitors. So again, we're going to go by host first. So Al, who do you think you have picked the most often for match of the night? Hmm. I think I end up up being more DDP with that. Than for MVP for whatever reason, I think that's railing more. Obviously, I do a lot of, enjoy a lot of Sting matches, obviously, but I feel like I, as far as like the matches for show, I think I picked DDP more than Sting in that case. All right, you would be incorrect. Oh, okay. You you still love Sting? Even I do. I You're a faithful it, yeah. friend. Okay. You're a faithful little stinger. 
Okay. Sting got nine Match of the Night awards from you. Oh, okay. For me? It's going to be really boring if a Sting every time, isn't it? <laughs> I know you enjoy a lot of... I know if Blinko ends up in there, but I know Blinko gets picked a lot, and he's around a lot of really good matches with you. Then again, it might actually be Flair for that, so I'm not sure. Okay. It is a tie. Okay. With eight awards each, we have Ric Flair and Diamond Dallas Page. Gotcha. And for John, if you'll recall, it was the Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal, who collectively got four. Yes, I remember that. Now, for all of us together, who do you think is in the lead for Match of the Night? So we have focusing on that, I feel like Flair's got a real headway on that, because early on, especially through Starcade, he gets a lot of that. Okay, going for Flair? Yeah. All right. In third place... We have some movement from last time. Replacing Ricky the Dragon Steamboat is Diamond Dallas Page with 13. In second place is Ric Flair with 15. Okay. And in first place, it was very close. With 18 is Sting. Okay. Ready to do a Tully Blanchard check? Sure. What number is he at now? let 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 me ask you, what place do you think he is at now? Statistically, you would think he's very low, but I feel like he's going to be higher than I think. So, he, is he top 10 still? He is still in the top 10. Uh, I'm going to go with eighth place. You are close. I, oh, you are oh, close. Pretty good. In fourth place, we have a tie. With 12 each is Chris Benoit and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Mm-hmm. In fifth place, with 10, is Vader. In sixth place, we have another tie. With nine each, Arn Anderson and Ray Mysterio Jr. Mm-hmm. And in seventh place, we have a tie with eight each, Lex Luger and Tully Blanchard. Ah, there you go. He is hanging in there, especially considering how long it's been since he even had a match on the show. Yeah, we haven't had a Tully Blanchard match since, what, Slampery 95, I think? Yeah, I believe so. I think it was Slampery 95. We had one fr- match on that series. Yeah. But he has had all of his match of the nights are still from our Starcade run. Yeah. That's an amazing longevity there. Yeah. Whenever we get around to doing like Great American Bashes and shows that take place more in the area, era, will he jump back? It'll be interesting to see if he can get back like in the top five or something at that point. I doubt he'll ever come back up to first place again. Right. Because he just doesn't have enough shows at this point. But he has a real chance to hang out in the top 10 for a while yet. Mm -hmm. That is uh, definitely still shocking to me to see how high up on the list he still is. If you ever covered that one ECW show where him and it's him and Arn as the uh, team grizzled dads, I believe you called them. <laughs> that that might help his stats. So I don't know if we we're going to do that show. With all the data out of the way, it is time to give some series awards. So each show we have awarded our match of the night and MVP, but now we're going to look at things across the entire series. So to start off, we'll go for our series MVPs. There's three people in no particular order. Who are your series MVPs, Al? Okay, so first off, I have a reliable hand and, I guess, feet in this case. I ran across all four shows. And the thing is, with this series especially, there's not a lot of promo content, as I'm sure we'll cover a little bit later. So it's really a show for the the worker, I think, mm-hmm. because yeah. there's not someone living some dazzling promo that might supersede and like make someone else stand out and not do it. So first off, I have Rey Mysterio Jr. Okay, yep. Very good choice. 
because obviously I liked him on a bunch of shows, 97, 98 especially. He was still enjoyable in 99, I thought. That old match was a little interesting, but I thought he was a good part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, He really bumped well for ICP, I think I said at the time. He wanted to make them look good, which is credit to him. Plus, he was adorable dressing up as Big Bro Kidman. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I agree with you. I, I agree with you. Jokes aside, yeah. Rey Mysterio is, a, is an amazing performer. Right. And very consistent. Right. It's funny because we cover so much, even in a four-show span, forget that we have a Rey Mysterio Ultimo Dragon match on the first show, which is also really good. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's shame it's lacking story, which, again, is an issue throughout the series, because promo content, but yeah, that's one. Again, going quality, especially longevity of his actual matches, I go with Chris Benoit. Okay. He's a solid hand throughout the shows. 96, 97, you have him doing really well. And 99, he has a nice comeback where he has the big match with DDP, mm-hmm. where DDP is in a position to put him really over, perhaps too over, as I think I argued at the time, or the kicking out of all this stuff. A little super Cena with Benoit there, but... And obviously saw a reliable hand here. And I think because one person that would normally be here is either in a match or two that's not good or is underwhelming, and of course misses some time, makes room for DDP. Okay. Who again is a solid hand throughout all the shows. The fact that he makes his part, especially of a tag match involving Jay Leno? <laughs> yes. And Hogan, for that matter, with me, work rate-wise, says something about him. And again, 99, he pushed Ben Waver really well. So, yeah. Out of curiosity, who's your person that you were saying would be on there normally? Sting. Oh, okay. Makes sense. Because Sting is absent in 97, and 98 is, uh And while obviously I enjoyed his appearance in 99 better than you did, or the match as a whole better than you did, it's not enough to bump up DPs more solid in this Okay. Case. For mine, I have Dean Malenko. Right. Dino Machino is, as always, a reliable performer, and in this case, he actually shows up on every single show, three times as a match competitor, and once as a guest referee. Is he Dino Referio on that show? Uh, He should have been, but Jericho was not thinking and did Ah. not dub him that, so I can't. (laughs) Every time he shows up, no matter how long or short his time is on the show, he provides a quality performance, and he only benefits the show. I have never, to my recollection, seen a match where I said, Dean Malenko dragged that down at all. No. My second one, Diamond Dallas Page. Right. He appears on three of the four shows, 1997 through 1999, and is another reliably good performer for WCW who can be counted on to do his absolute best with the hand he's dealt, even if that hand is, hey, Page, can you walk Jay Leno of all people through putting on a wrestling match? Yeah. He did a lot, as you said, to rescue that match from being an absolute disaster. And his other two matches are quite good. Plus, his big personality, especially his evident joy at playing a smug heel mm-hmm. in 1999, always leave an impression. Yeah. And my third one, a little bit unusual here, but I'm going to go with The Crowd. Okay. Definitely one of the most interesting things about this series is the audience. With the crowd composed in large part of bikers attending the show on their motorcycles, the Wild series was like no other series that we have yet watched. They're enthusiastic and involved, and the revving engines provide a totally different sound and feel to the shows. So they were absolutely critical to giving this series its identity, and that's why they're on this list. I can see that, yeah. Yeah, it's one thing that if they had done a 2000 show and say maybe taken it away from Sturgis, like they still call it Road Wild, but just put in an arena. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if it would be the same. It would feel completely different. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's such an important part of the show for sure mm-hmm. that I can't picture the series without that. Yeah. Now you could use them as um, like the AWA did on the repilot. Just put them digitally on the side, boring <laughs> on the show. <laughs> that would be that would be the same. Oh right? my gosh. So next up, matches of the series. So again, we have three matches in no particular order. You don't have to say first, second, or last, because no, that's okay. darn near impossible to do. Okay. Uh, please do name the shows they were on as well. Okay. Uh, I've got Rey Mysterio versus Conan from the 1997 show. Okay. It's a match. The first time I watched, I didn't like it as much. On a longer watch and rewatch, I really enjoy the nuance of it. Mm-hmm. The fact that Ray manages to do a pretty good job of trying to wrestle with normal style and adapt, doing something like doing lariats, as we talked about in there, which normal one doesn't do. And really selling the leg and selling the sort of fighting spirit aspect of that was a good one. And showing he has range as well. He does one of the best jobs of selling that I have ever seen genuinely in that match. It's just a, a, an amazing performance by him. And again, it stands out in an interesting way versus seeing him in Dragon on 96, which it does not insult, but is a normal Rey Mysterio match. Mm-hmm. 98 is the same way with him in Psychosis and 99 the mixed tag match. So seeing one with him being really good and also feeling different is a nice touch for that. You appreciate the uniqueness of it. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Second, I have Sting and Luga versus The Outsider from 96's show. Okay. That one I thought did a really good job of that strong face in peril, like fighting underneath thing. Even if Sting is a little dumb for selling with that match. He does I the, mean, it's Sting. <laughs> yeah. He does the walk to the wrong quarter spot twice, you know, that kind of stuff. As a whole, I thought that in contrast to the 97 tag match with the Outsiders versus the Steiners, mm-hmm. I thought the balance was slightly better in 96. Okay. That 97, as good as that match with the Steiners is, it's so lopsided against them yeah. for so much of the match. And then the ending, of course, is a whole other thing entirely. It doesn't help. Both of them suffer a little bit from a awkward ending, but in 96, it's more execution of it. Mm-hmm. The idea, I think, is pretty much fine. Yes. In 97, the idea is a little like, what? <laughs> so yeah exactly that drags it down a little bit more in 97 yeah for sure and lastly i have a really good match on a bad show which is ddp versus chris benoit from okay. 99 world wild it's definitely the saving grace of that show if they could have put that on example 98 show somehow that would have made would really help distinguish the quality level between 98 and 99 it would have <laughs> true, true, true. taken the one good thing away from 99 and given it to 98 <laughs> which def- definitely needed more of that it really speaks to the show that I can pick a match on, no spoiler here, the worst show of the series for me, and put it on my, my series' best show. Mm-hmm. Matches. Yeah, that was a really, really well done match. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, definite credit to both guys on that. And I remember thinking they did such a nice evolution of some spots there, especially like Benoit's Rolling Germans. I, I will be very fondly remembering the spot where they turned that into repeated pinfalls. Yes, yeah. That, that was excellently done. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say all of yours that you've named were in contention for mine. Okay. But I have actually chosen three different matches. Okay. So I'm I'm, I'm kind of surprised on that one. All right. But yeah, definitely all of yours, really good choices. Thank you. For mine, Hogwild 1996, Ultimo Dragon versus Rey Mysterio. Really good match, yeah. I agree with you that this one's more of a standard Rey Mysterio match than the Mysterio versus Conan one, and it was a narrow decision for me to hold this one up. But I just think it is an exceptional, fast-paced opening match, lots of variety, some incredible acrobatics, 
good, strong storytelling, with Dragon moving from confidence to overconfidence, getting himself in trouble by underestimating Mysterio repeatedly. Mysterio and Dragon worked really, really well together, providing an exciting show to kick the series off right. Agreed, yeah. My second one? Mm-hmm. Hogwild 1996? Malenko versus Benoit. Right. Holy crap, what an epic this mm-hmm. one was. For over 25 minutes, Benoit and Malenko put on a showcase of intricate holds and counters, constantly adding new elements to their match and never letting it get stale. Their execution of every move was perfect, mm-hmm. even towards the end of a lengthy, lengthy match. That's always impressive, but even more so considering this was an outdoor show, as we've discussed, well, the sun's still up, which could not have made it easy or pleasant. No. Even Nick Patrick refereeing this match seemed very tired by the end of this one. But Benoit and Malenko came out of this looking really strong and really capable. Yeah, agreed. And Road Wild 1998, Juventud Guerrera versus Chris Jericho with Dean Malenko as guest referee. Gotcha. This one is on here just for being plain fun. Jericho and Guerrero put on a great in-ring performance with some great acrobatics and holds and some tremendous character work by Jericho. But then you add in Dean Malenko doing a really good job as a guest referee and adding to the match's story rather than distracting from it, in my opinion. And you've got a real winner. Jericho and Malenko interacted amazingly well in this, interacting just often enough to make it feel different but without actually slowing the match down or putting attention off of the action. Yeah, you you never forget that it's Malenko as the guest ref. He never blends into the background Mm -hmm. on that. But at the same time, you're not distracted by his presence when you're not supposed to be. It's a case where I think Dean Malenko's... um, I'm trying to think of a better, of a nicer way to sound to say this than lack of a personality, but lack of a personality. Dean Malenko's lack of a personality actually really benefits this because he's not the sort of guy that's going to do big, boisterous gestures and call attention to himself for stuff. He's very businesslike. He just goes in there. He's like, "Oh, you need me to ref a match? I'm going to ref a match," mm-hmm. and he really does. Uh, he serves excellently as a referee. Yeah, he comes off just as a normal referee who's a little bit tougher than normal, rather than you know, a guy who's in there trying to make the show about him. Right. It's one of the best guest referee performances that I that I have ever seen, and that's where I felt like I needed to note it. It's definitely a stark contrast, performance-wise at least, from when we had Randy Savage guest refereeing with right, Frank yeah. Campy 99, which I enjoyed that part, but yeah, it's definitely, yeah, I, they had different takes on that. I, I did very much enjoy Savage's like flexing counts in particular, but the story of the match was in part about Savage. Yes. The focus kept coming back to him from time to time. Yeah. Where Malenko kind of like backgrounds himself a little bit until he really needs to be out in the open. Right, exactly, yeah. Now the awards that nobody wants. So first up, we have our least valuable performers. The people that either didn't add anything or actively took away from the shows. So with this one, I am letting you pick up to three. You do not have to pick Three. Okay. So you need to pick at least one, but it doesn't have to go to three. Okay. I think I can still pick three, but yeah, it's, it's two are definitely stronger choices, I'd say. Okay. Uh, first one is Dennis Rodman. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, so for one thing, I had to watch all the buildup on this. Oh, yeah. That would be torture. And all that stuff where he's possibly doing very untoward things, at the very least kidnapping a woman. And then somehow he's the face going into the storyline. And he doesn't really wrestle a match at all. Right. He did a lot of punching, and he lets Savage lead him up the ramp very casually. Are you kidding? He was the second coming of Ricky Steamboat. 
Oh, right. <laughs> According to the announcers, anyway. Yeah, all right. Yeah. He's kind of like the opposite, going back to the Malenko thing. Is you get nothing other than the idea that he's there as the appeal. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do anything really exciting. He just, de- hey, Des Rodman is on this show. Right, yeah, he's just a name. Yeah, and at that point, he's not even as good a name, because he's, he's about a year or so past his big performance, you know, with the, uh, with the <laughs> I'm blanking all of a sudden now, with the Bulls. Oh, okay. Being in Florida, I, when I started thinking, I think I think Bucks, I think not Bulls. Oh, oh gotcha. I know it's not Bucks, but I try to. I, I have done that myself. Yes, I will. Yeah. yeah, he's just passed his like peak performance, so he's even not as much of a marquee name as they they had him before. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he just doesn't add anything to the show, and it's so bad. <laughs> uh second, I have Buff Bagwell. Okay, so he's honestly okay. On the his first appearance, which is the '97 show with him and Scott Norton, he never never does anything especially bad, but he's also not especially great. He he does real basic stuff. Doesn't really stand out to me. Nothing special. But then you have '99, where he's suddenly in singles focus with Ernest Miller, and the idea is was he's supposed to be carrying this guy and like running this match through. It's so stop start. Mm-hmm. It's one of those ones where. It lives and dies by the crowd reaction. Like it need that for every spot. Yeah. So they constantly slow down or stop over those. And of course, they botch the finish with their roll up. And that's not even the fact that in the build up he appears in blackface, which was cut from Nitro on Peacock. Yeah. So that's just an extra thing. It's not why he's there, though. That should be enough to be. If he did it on the show, especially, that'd be enough to put him in the worst of. Right. Lastly, I feel. I know. I. I don't say I feel bad about it because, but it's it's a less strong one. So Mongo, okay, in the was supposed to be officially had a tag match, which are Tim and Benoit against essentially Jeff Jarrett and Malenko, and of course Jarrett famously pins himself so he gets out of the match. <laughs> it's a clever bit from him, but I'm not judging Jeff Jarrett. I'm judging Mongo here again. Mongo doesn't really mess something up in this tag match. Mm-hmm. But again, it's real basic stuff. It's nothing especially exciting. And of the four people, he does the least. Okay. And when two of them are Benoit Malenko, it stands out more, I think. True, yes. And then, of course, we get to 98 when, for some reason, he's abruptly back with a singles match with Brian Adams, who's a guy who's not going to be able to carry him through a match. No offense to Brian Adams, but he just was never that guy. Mm-hmm. And they bought really basic stuff like running clotheslines or... Possibly ducking a clothesline. It's three spots are yeah. There's here. there's several spots in that match that go so wrong that you can't even tell what they were meant to be in the first place. Right. And it's, while not to the same degree, having him on the show is similar in the Rodman aspect, where it's hey, Mongo's in the show, but then it's a random throwaway match with an opponent that's not a big name, and it's not part of a bigger story other than hey, I wonder if one of the four horsemen, which does really all of that matter that much long term. Right. So he's not even back and botching in a marquee match. He's back and botching in a fairly nothing match that I'm not even sure why it's on the show. Right. Yeah. I can see that. All right. So for mine. Okay. I have Dennis Rodman. Yes. I realized that the guy only had one match on the series, but it was an absolute horror show. Yeah. Terrible action. Basic moves built up like they're innovative and amazing. A ridiculous series of ref bumps, giving it, thus far, the record for the number of replacement referees in one match. Mm -hmm. And it's far, 
far longer than it needs to be at over 11 minutes. Yeah. Worse, Rodman comes off as a truly horrible person in that appearance, apparently excited and hopeful to get to threaten the woman he previously kidnapped. Yeah. His brief appearance on 97, where he did an awful job of spray painting NWO on the big gold belt, does not help. Yeah. <laughs> My second one. Uh-huh. Uh, you named one participant in a certain match on 99, so I will name the other one. Okay. Ernest the Cat Miller. Okay. He comes out. He wears Confederate flag gloves. Yeah. He repeatedly and annoyingly tries to start a promo. He chokes his opponent. A lot. He does precisely one interesting kick. Cat just puts on a very, very poor performance on this one. And yes, it's only once, but like with Rodman, that's kind of what earns him his place on this list. Most of the other people I could pick for poor moments, Hogan, Rick and Scott Steiner, maybe Savage, uh, even Buff Bagwell, have at least a solid or even a good segment elsewhere in the series that salvages things and remove them for me from contention. Understood. I don't really debate your choice of Buff Bagwell. No, I get you, yeah. Just for me, him having... The one match that's at least kind of solid earlier in the series kind of pulled it back for me a little. Right. Cat does not. Gotcha. But that's a, that's a thing that comes up with like talking about performers, even like bad with movies, for instance. Like when Tommy Wiseau only did The Room, for mm-hmm. instance, like people would go, oh, he's the worst director of all time. And I'm like thinking of the time, like, but he's only done the one thing. Admittedly, it is The Room. Yeah. But it, yeah, it feels too early, especially with an all-time, like, worst of all time aspect, not just... If they said the worst director that year, I'd go, yeah, probably. Right, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's tricky when you have only one to go off. That's the thing with me with Buff, and just let's say with Mongo, is that they showed they were competent at one point, and then he just really crapped the bed, too. Yeah. The lovely metaphor. I could certainly like, say that argument yeah, yeah. as well, yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a debate people have on how you decide that. Mm-hmm. And for me, for the third one, again, going kind of interesting here, uh-huh. the crowd. Okay. <laughs> so for all the positive contributions that they make to the show's identity, which earned them a place on my MVPs, yeah, the crowd often becomes a massive distraction as well. From their uncomfortably aggressive behavior towards Harlem Heat on the 1996 show, yeah. to their evident confusion about who the good and bad guy were in the Hogan versus Giant match on the same to their constant interruption of in-ring promos that seem to genuinely throw several people off of their game, even good promo guys occasionally, the crowd can just be a disruptive presence as often as it's an interesting one. By the fourth show, it was really, really wearing on me, and as much as I'd liked them earlier, I just kind of wanted them to shut up and let the show happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as I said, they, they, they were definitely worthy of MVP for just giving the show this this unique feel. Yeah. But at the same time, as the show's unique feel starts to drag on you, they are responsible for a large yeah. part of that. In many ways, they're like the uh, Raw After WrestleMania crowd mm-hmm. on Sussy and Bad Years. Yes. Where we're like, this show is amazing because people are like hyped up and everything. And they're like, we are awesome. Yeah. But then they're like crazy chant, but yeah, then they'll chant for themselves. And they're like, I want to interrupt with CM Punk chant back before he's even back in wrestling. Right. Yeah. So yeah, definitely a double-edged sword with that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think this is, again, where, you know, as we conversed earlier, they probably would not be on my list if we hadn't watched this as a single series. If we were doing ours just chronologically and then uh, coming back, you know, towards the end of our show and looking back on it and saying, okay, who's your LVP for this series? Yeah. I don't think the crowd would be on there. No. But the fact that we did watch it this way, yeah, um, I think 
aggravated yeah. me over time and just made it really stand out how how very disruptive they could be. Doesn't we think how complicated our setup would be doing wrap ups if we did that the the standard chronological way? Because we, I guess we we had to do was like do you know ninety three for instance, do every show ninety three and then do ninety three year review. Yeah, have a, all these random shows in a series. Or genuinely, I had in, in my original plan for this before we decided to do it series by series. I did have our like last several things in 2000 as each series came to an end was a look back at that series oh, as a whole okay. still. So I always did have the, like the series by series thing in in mind, just a much more difficult version of it. Yeah. I think. <laughs> we would have been even more thankful that I keep a database, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And now your worst matches of the series. So again, pick up to three. Okay. Unsurprisingly, I have the Dance Rodman Randy Savage match. Mm-hmm. Again, the match as a whole, it's disappointing for so many reasons because I didn't expect anything from Rodman, obviously. But Randy Savage was such a good performer. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I don't know if it's physical limitation, which I think was a factor to some degree. His knees were getting worse and worse as time went on, unfortunately. And he got much more into that brawling stuff and stopped doing elbow drops as regularly. I thought, very least, he could make his part of the match interesting and be like, okay, I can enjoy him and, and hate Rodman and maybe even out to some degree. Mm-hmm. Like putting, you know, you have mediocre food, putting, you know, hot sauce you like on it. Helps, <laughs> that kind of stuff. But he didn't help. Yeah, with Savage, much like with DDP, there's kind of an expectation that when he's in a match, it's going to be well plotted, at least. Yeah. And it felt like this one was not. No, no, it was not. Yeah. Like, Maybe the whole binder strategy doesn't work with Rodman. Like, maybe he won't read them. <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah. This is a guy who, again, was supposed to be the heel, I think. But then, because he comes out wearing this, like, ridiculous robe, the same kind of robe Jericho wore as a heel in yeah. 98, then takes his robe up to wearing a Sturgis shirt. So I don't even know if he's supposed to be the bad guy or the good guy. Yeah, I, I'm totally unclear on that in the, in the lead-up to that and in the match itself. Who's supposed to be the bad guy in that match? Yeah. Yeah, so it's one where, yeah, unfortunately, the reliable hand could not save things. It's mm-hmm. really disappointing. Also, unsurprisingly, I have the Mongo versus Brian Adams match, as okay. mentioned. Again, it's, they botch really basic stuff. They always seem to go at 75% speed, especially because every show we have cruiserweights on there. And even heavyweights that wrestle more steady pace. Mm-hmm. And again, it's just, it's not even that important. It's not like... It's for a title, and it's not for any major application. It's just, Mongo's back and around. He's fighting random WO guys because he wants to bring the horseman back, which, again, long-term doesn't really matter. Okay. So it's not a good match. There's no stakes. And I'm not even sure why it's on the show. <laughs> so nothing saves it. And breaking the mold of stuff we were talking about in depth, I have the my third worst, the NWO Invitational Battle Royal. Okay. So that one finds so many generational talents. You know, Sting, Kevin Nash. You have people that have come to come, something like that. You have like Slugers, you've got Giant. Even people that never quite reached that high, but are always reliable hands in one way or another. Like you have Conan's, your um, Scott Norton's and such. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they're all in this match. And then Goldberg pops in. It's the NWO Invitational Battle Royal, also featuring Goldberg. Right. Who's the world champion. So rather than just fighting a guy, he's just thrown in here to work with Battle Royal, the gimmick being that 
What if he loses this match? First up, will it count towards his streak or not? Who knows? Because according to whoever tracks his streak on Wikipedia, he gets one point, one victory for beating all these people in one match. So <laughs> who knows? Yeah. And as you said, it just it's a match where everyone disappears into it. There's very little story that really matters. I mean, you have Scott Hall being eliminated, and then Kevin Nash leaves with him because part of their story. Nash also managed to avoid getting eliminated at the <laughs> Nash way. At least it helps the story. Yeah, yeah. But then so many people just vanish in this match. As you mentioned, at one point in the match, when they're just trying to clear people out, Scott Norton and Sting are just locked up and just shoved out by the Giant, I believe. Goldberg. Oh, is it Goldberg? Okay, sorry, you're right. Yeah, uh, the Giant eliminates Lex Luger after right. Goldberg spears Lex Luger. Correct. So even that one relates to Goldberg. There you go. <laughs> That's right. I was, try- I was trying to rebook this better, I guess. Than I <laughs> yes, exactly. But yeah, Sting just... He just, like, in a collar high up and just shoved out of the ring. You're like, oh, well, Sting's gone, I guess. Yeah. The biggest thing with this match, though, is it takes all these people, puts them in one match, which means they can't be in other parts in the show. Mm-hmm. So stuff that shouldn't necessarily be on this show, like, for instance, Mongo versus Brian Adams, need to be on there because they're short, like, eight people in this battle royal. That's not even good. So, so you blame. So, this match is on your on your worst three because you blame its existence for the existence of Mongo versus Brian Adams. <laughs> that is one factor. Yes. No, I I definitely see your argument on it. That if you're talking about the amount of wasted talent in one match, yeah, that's got to be up there with the worst waste of talent that we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Definitely. For mine, I have. Road Wild 1999, Cat versus Buff Bagwell. Uh huh. Do a move, stall. Do a move, stall. Do a couple moves, stall. Choke, choke, choke. One kind of decent kick. More choking. That's this match. Mm-hmm. Actually, that still makes it sound a little bit better than it actually is. It doesn't help that it takes forever to get going in the first place with repeated attempts at promos. Or that Cat wears Confederate flag gloves. Or that Buff Bagwell is, well, Buff Bagwell. Really bad match. Don't forget Sonny Ono's hat. Yes, Sonny Ono's hat. Yes, that also counts against this. Yes. Or even then, they missed the finish up. Yes. My second one, Road Wild 1999, Rick Steiner versus Goldberg. Yeah, I had this be here. This match has even less variety than Cat versus Bagwell, which is astonishing but true. Steiner just spends an eternity hitting Goldberg with a knee brace in the most awkward manner he possibly could. Yeah. Then loses because it's time to lose. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how Rick Steiner and Goldberg managed to put on a match so absolutely devoid of anything interesting. They are two guys who spend their careers hurling people around like rag dolls. Just do that to each other and it will work. Yeah. This was a failure but a massively perplexing failure. Uh-huh, yeah. And third? Uh-huh. Road Wild 1999. Mm-hmm. Guess what shows my worst show? <laughs> yeah. Dennis Rodman versus Randy Savage. 1999 just kept getting worse. Yeah. Rodman and Savage engaged in a match so incredibly dull and stupid that it hurt not just them, but the commentary team, who had to pretend that something remotely interesting and exciting was going on. Mm -hmm. Add in five referees, a record, I believe, a stroll backstage, and literal poop. Yes. And you have one of the worst matches 
not just on this series, but on any series we have ever watched. It seems impossible that this involves Randy Savage, but it does. So here's a, here's a challenge for you, Bob. You have to watch one of these two matches. You have to decide which one. All right. Dennis Rodman versus Randy Savage, or Sting versus The Prisoner. Man. Yeah. Man. I mean, it's a more direct contest, I'd say, with the Ernest Miller Buff Bagwell match without the stopping and choking, but thinking of the worst ones. Yeah. Um, I, gal, I actually kind of think I'd choose Sting versus the Prisoner. <laughs> like, it could, it, it's shorter, I think. Yeah. It, it at least does not involve actual poop. Yeah. It's bad, but it's not like actively stupid. Right. It's, it's like still a fairly straightforward match. It's just no variety whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So it, but I mean, don't get me wrong. That it's still it's a really close decision. I know the fact that you have to think about it is not good. Yeah. What What would your choice be between those? Would that be same for you? Or yeah, I'd probably still go with Sting and the Prisoner. Yeah, which says something about how bad Rodman versus Savage is. Yeah, that we would both choose something that we have previously said was one of the worst matches we've ever watched. Yeah. <laughs> I go back and watch that match with. Uh, with a shock master versus one of the two Kongs. <laughs> well, I mean, at least that one takes like, what, a minute 30? Right. <laughs> but for the series overall, we've got some other awards to hand out. First up, the best commentary team. So which commentary team did you enjoy most? And please name the show. All right. Uh, for me, it's the Tony, Bobby, Dusty team from 96. Okay. Because for them, this is all like with the audience. It's a real fresh experience. Mm-hmm. They're sort of getting used to this visual and working with this crowd. Like they play off all that ex- new experimental nature of this whole thing very well. Mm-hmm. And of course, the trio always work together really well in general. Yeah. So giving us something fresh to work with, the new environment, all this stuff, I think that stands out for me. Okay. For me, it was also Tony, Bobby, and Dusty, but I chose Road Wild 1997. Okay. Obviously, as we all know by this point, I love this particular combination of commentators. Right. On this show, I just thought they did an excellent job of building up the show's theme. Their excitement over the chance that WCW has to eliminate the NWO and their descent into shock and despair as things turn against WCW in the end and they lose that chance really help reinforce the show's events and fill some gaps in the show's concept particularly from the overall lack of promo content. Yeah. They were needed really badly on the show, and I felt they rose to the occasion just a tiny bit better for me than they did on the 96 show. Fair enough. I will admit that their um, credulousness at the fake sting does hurt things a little bit, but yeah, not enough to remove the good of their overall performance. Okay, that's fine, yeah. And this one, I don't know about you, but this one was hard for me. Yeah. The best promos or non-match segments... Were there things other than matches that stood out to us across the series? Name up to three. I mean, honestly, that's the one I really didn't fill out. I was really trying to look back, and I'm like, what can I fill in here as these really memorable stuff? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there's a little bit, I don't know. Yeah, I, didn't, I honestly didn't write it down, because I couldn't think of anything. The stuff I enjoyed in short bursts, like in 99, they had a couple decent bits where they're playing with the crowd. I thought Candy did okay working with the crowd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's really not much to cover, unfortunately, with the series. I'm struggling to fill out a list of things for something. There's just not much to say. Yeah, there's there's a surprising lack of promo content across this series. Yeah. 
I do have some okay. uh, in mind that I've managed to do, though, so uh, you can tell me if you agree with mine. That's fine, yeah. Okay. I have Hogwild 1996, the post-main event NWO promo. Oh, I've forgotten that one, yeah. It doesn't go perfectly. No, sure. And there's ways that we said it could be improved for sure, but nevertheless, it's a really important promo. Right. It's delivered pretty well, and it ends with an absolutely iconic moment, the defacing of the big gold belt. Mm-hmm showing the pure disdain that the NWO have for WCW, for its history, for its traditions, as well as cementing the destruction of the prior Hulk Hogan persona by discarding his oldest friend. True, yeah. So I think there's ways it could have gone better, but man, it is a massively important one. And it goes well enough, I think, to make my list. That's one of those ones, it lives and dies with the fact that it's done right after the big match and at the end of the show. Because yeah. they just worked a match, and now they got to remember all these lines and spots and cues. I'm sure that was a tough thing to do after a match, yeah. Yeah. My second one, also from Hogwild 1996, Ric Flair's pre-recorded promo. Oh, I forgot. You may remember this one. This was the video package that they air. They do air it on the show, so it counts. Yeah, yeah. It's clearly recorded prior, but they do air it on the show. Flair does just an excellent job in this one, going over a complex relationship with the NWO talks about his intent at first to just coexist with them, his realization at the cost of his friend Arn Anderson's health that that wasn't going to be possible, his desire for revenge, and his understanding that the NWO are a threat to the entirety of WCW. Flair does an amazing job of making the NWO angle different than other heel faction angles, and the fact that Flair himself is actually still quite a major heel at this point, but still pulls off a sympathetic promo and makes it clear the NWO is far worse is really impressive. No, yeah. Now you mentioned that, I did probably forgotten that one as well. But yeah, that is really good. Yeah. And my third one, again from Hogwild 1996. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I will admit that that's part of the reason I had so much trouble choosing great promos is that all the good ones happened on Hogwild 1996. So it was the furthest show back. <laughs> the Giant and Jimmy Hart promo. Um, this one's kind of shorter than the others, but I think goes quite well. Hart's part of this is pretty standard. And to be fair, Giant has a few perplexing wordings in the midst of his part, but nevertheless, he does a really good job of building up his personal sense of betrayal by Hogan, and explaining his prior heelish actions as a result of him understanding all along that Hulk Hogan was just an act, and Hollywood Hogan was the real Hogan. For still being a very new performer at this point, Giant did a good job with twisting the dynamic of his existing feud with Hogan to make himself the face and Hogan the heel. Not that the 1996 crowd picked up on it, but it gave it the old college try. Yeah. It's not quite as good as his promo on Nitro a few days prior, but it's still really good. Even as a decent one that they only play on the WCW Saturday Night Taping, mm-hmm. which is where he attacks Ice Train. Oh, okay. It doesn't cover all the same ground, but yeah, he sort of builds up that he's there to keep them from getting the power. Yeah. That's important, yeah. Yeah, 1996 Giant is continually surprising to me in how good good he is at the character side of things. You really would expect that to be something that would take longer for someone to develop. Yeah. Like, you can get the in-ring stuff. If you're going to get that, you can get a decent level of skill in that in, like, your first couple of years. And maybe you can't do complicated things, but you can be capable at the basic stuff early. But it really feels like the character stuff should take longer to develop. But Giant seems to get that basically immediately, which is really impressive. Yeah, the only thing with the Giant promo is you have to forget that he turns heel and joins the people like three weeks later. Yes, yeah. Because money, apparently, to buy cigarettes, I guess. Yeah, I, I won't, uh, I won't oh, yeah. that against this show, but it's that. definitely, yeah. 
Not all matches are the usual sort of singles or tag match, though. So, Al, what was your favorite gimmick match on the series? Anything that wasn't just standard singles or tag? So, based on the fact that I put it on the match of the series, you'd think it would be the no DQ match. Okay. With Benoit and DEP. But the thing about it, as much as I really enjoy that match and it's really good, I don't think it is that much with the no DQ aspect of it, other than right. using yeah. belts and such. They're pretty harsh, but I think the only thing they do is with the belt. Yeah, exactly. So the one I that I also enjoyed didn't make the cut, but it was a joyful match and had more with the gimmick was the three way Ravens Rules match from ninety eight, I believe it was. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, ninety eight, yeah. Because that one, they fought all over the place. They went up the stage in a you know, nice, safe little dive that uh, Saturn did and a less safe fall that Canyon did yeah. a bit later. Yeah. So that one, I think, made the most of its gimmick and was also a draw match for that. Okay. Uh, for mine, I'm going to go maybe a little bit out of left field here, I think. But okay. I'm going to say the elimination tag match from Road Wild 1997. Okay. The Malenko and Jarrett versus Mongo and Benoit. It's not a huge gimmick, but I thought they used it quite well, with Jarrett having lots of fun with his short role, and poor Malenko just getting a break, only for his partner to immediately betray him by eliminating himself. Yeah. It's a really unusual way to screw over a tag partner, and made for a memorable moment. Mm -hmm. There's other matches that are technically gimmick matches that I like somewhat better as a match. For instance, Mysterio versus Conan's technically a no-DQ match. But I didn't feel like that really used the gimmick, like you said, with Page versus Ben. Yeah, agreed. It just seemed like a brutal standard match. Mm. The elimination tag makes the gimmick intrinsic to the match story. So that's where I felt that one called out more. Jarrett realizes in character that I can get out of fighting Mongo, which is what he wanted. He didn't want to fight Mongo right. at all. Yeah. So I can get out of this by getting pinned and then... And then hightailing it out of town. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Leave him with my life. And the... the the joy with which he does that is amazing. Yeah. Do you have a worst type of gimmick match? You can either name a specific match or name the overall type if there's one that just keeps coming up. Right. For me, the fact that it wasted so many people, that Battle Royal with the NWO stuff was the worst one for me. Okay, yeah. It's the worst use of all that talent. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, like you said, the the sheer amount of wasted talent in that and the questionableness of how it's booked yeah yeah as we discussed in the episode if they had done it royal rumble style right something that would be interesting yeah you get alternated the wolf pack and black and white people coming in spaced out the eliminations and people wouldn't have gotten lost so easily in that because you'd only have a few people in the ring at one time Yeah. yeah exactly uh for mine i would have said no dq matches because of rodman versus savage but otherwise no dq matches actually went pretty well on this series overall yeah so it kind of feels bad to declare that my worst type based off of really one going particularly poorly right so instead see if you think that this actually qualifies as a type of its own l okay if you don't i have a second choice all right standard tag matches that become no dq matches midway through (laughs) Gee, what, what would that yeah, be? so that would be Dancing Fools versus The Public Enemy. I just found that so, so annoying, especially yeah. how it just pauses the match entirely halfway through, loses all momentum so they can go about retrieving weapons all the way from backstage. Yeah. <laughs> it's bad because of the gimmick, or more precisely because the gimmick changes midway. It also doesn't help that Rock or Rock spends most of the match wandering away at random intervals whenever his poor partner gets in trouble. Yeah. Do you feel like that's a... Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was I was questioning because 
it technically starts as a standard tag, but I think the conversion made it it's a, a unique gimmick of its own. Mm-hmm. No, agreed. Yeah. And just so you know, my alternative was the Battle Royale. Gotcha. The NWO Invitational, because I agree with you on basically every point you made about that. It just <laughs> wasn't, for me, it wasn't quite as annoying. <laughs> no, I gotcha. All right, here's a fun one. Okay. The best performer with a single appearance on the series. So who was it you really, really would have loved to see again the most? Okay. So going off of your choices earlier, I would go with Ultimo Dragon. Okay. His match with Stereo was really good. I wish they had given him more story, like to why it's happening. But it's inside its own match. It told a good story, like he said, of Dragon being confident, then overconfident, and that costing him. Mm-hmm. And obviously, he's been a very reliable performer through this Dark Age series and other series. So, Eddie Dragon is always good. With this being a short series, there's a lot of good performers that only show up once. Ultimo Dragon, Juventud Carrera, Kidman, who really seems underused even in his one appearance, Psychosis, Barry Windham, Jeff Jarrett. A lot of good choices there. But of those, I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to go with Ultimo Dragon. He is always a good, reliable, impressive performer, and it's a massive shame we don't get him more than once on this series. I think when we hit 1998, it's uh, it's actually, I believe, at that point, not an option because of an injury and botched surgery earlier in that year. Oh, yeah, I believe so. But, man, in an ideal world, I definitely could have used him on 98 and 99 in particular. Yeah. I am surprised in your list of people that you mentioned, Public Enemy was nowhere to be heard on there. Are you that surprised? No, not at all. No. I'd like to be surprised, but I'm not. There may be a series where, where they where they make that list. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Um, I do have an honorable mention as well. Uh, I can't call this guy the best performer with a single appearance, but he had a good look and seemed charismatic and probably quite capable. He just had the misfortune of being a small part of a bad, confusing match. Tokyo Magnum. Okay. Looking at the guy and seeing how he moved and, and he seemed to have some grace to him and everything. Mm-hmm. I would have liked to see him in a match to see what he could do. Yeah, I don't think he ever got to be like, hey, I'm a normal guy wrestling in WCW. I think he yeah. always stuck with that. Uh, from what I understand, he's had quite a long career. So um, I don't think that we necessarily will get a chance at seeing a match on a WCW show. But he's a guy that I would have been interested to see what he could actually uh, manage in a match. I would say for me, honorable mention, it's probably either Bull Nakano or Medusa. Yeah. Always could use more. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a, yeah. That's the other thing about the series. We have one women's match for the whole series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially coming off of, let's bring Medusa back from WWF because she's not happy not getting enough attention and enough, enough work you know, for people in the division. And this is what we have for you. One match and nothing ever again. Yeah. Yeah, no debate there. Most improved. Is there anyone that you thought wasn't doing too great when they first showed up, but later on they really improve and turn things around? Yes. So... Well, I don't think he's bad at first. I think he's an example of a combination of changing opponents and experience and just being booked better. Mm-hmm. For me, it's the Giant. Okay. Because I had the direct comparison of his 96 match with Hogan, which, as we've said many times, has the handicap of being Hogan's first real heel match in a good decade at this point. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't know that he needs to change his style enough and because he still does all these power moves on the Giant. The giant is going down to what to both knees from a single knuckle lock in like a split second. Yes, yeah. All these things. So ninety seven, you have the giant with Savage. When Savage is really motivated and can still work, Savage really puts him over and shows how you use someone of his athleticism and size. 
Savage can play the confident heel in the brief that he's in control, but it's clear that Giant, once he's able to work properly, can overcome all this mm-hmm. ease and shows that really well. And he doesn't drop off because 98, he's really good in that role as well. Right, yeah. With Goldberg. If there's one guy other than Goldberg that gets built up by that match is Giant. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is going to be interesting. Okay. Because for me, and this does come with a large caveat that I will get to, okay. I am choosing Hulk Hogan. Okay. So we both noted this at Hogwild 96, as you just mentioned, he's just starting out in his heel role mm-hmm. that he has not done for at least a decade. Yeah. He's clearly not sure how best to structure a match around it after spending more than a decade as a face. In 1997, he has massively improved in his match against Luger, able to provide a match with a much better flow and balance than in 1996. Yeah. In 1998, he's in a weird match, but he does his part in it, and he works quite well with DDP to make that match quite a bit better than it had any right to be. Yeah. It's still not great, but I mean, I was expecting an absolute horror show Dennis Rodman versus Savage style. Yes. And I got a little bad. Not yeah. not that bad. <laughs> Oh, really long, maybe, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fact that that match doesn't show up on either of our worst matches of the series match, I think, is a testament to Paige and to Hogan (laughs) on that. Yeah. The caveat, unfortunately, is 1999, where while it is somewhat endearing to see him having fun being back in his old babyface gimmick, his match against Nash is just plain dull. Still, his 1996 to 97-98 transition is something I felt I needed to acknowledge here as a genuine improvement. For all disparate Hogan... For many different reasons, I I can't really dispute that logic. Yeah. I'm I'm actually, I'm kind of glad that collectively we've picked both participants in that first disappointing main event, Mm -hmm. that both of them go on to have a better run later in the series on the the next two shows. Mm -hmm. So they kind of mirror each other that way, which is interesting. Yeah, that's true. And now, Al, you suggested that since this series is so short, we should actually try to rank the wilds yes which i would normally say is a really hard thing but at least for me i actually did have a pretty clear picture of it so we'll see if we agree on this okay so uh how about we go from best to worst okay all right you want to go first sure uh for me the best show is 97 okay i think being the second show it has the benefit of experience they know what they could do with the setting and with the stage Obviously, it's unfortunate there's less biker stuff on it, but as a whole, it feels more like a specialty biker show, that aside. And quality of match is still really good on there. And for me, the contrast is that there's matches like Savage and Giant mm-hmm. and matches like Luger and Hogan that show what could have been done with the previous year's main event and stuff like that okay. to build up that. So you can see improvement. Uh, second for me is 96. It's a really strong show. Quality-wise, for the most part, they're still getting their bearings on how they should do the staging. Like, it's just the crowd. There's no extra seating, which is a problem. That's very sparse with, like, the look of the biker aspect. Again, with the one match that actually matters with the theme. Yes. So they're both really good. But I think 97 is a more realized show uh, in a lot of ways. Those are the good shows. <laughs> Honestly, I have gone both ways in this for different reasons. But... For me, the third show has got to be 98. Okay. There's a lot of problems with it. Aside from the fact they finally get all the stage completely done now with the nice road ramp and everything. Still can't believe it took them three years to realize that that should be a thing. Yeah, yeah it's called Road Wild. <laughs> it's not that hard, right? Come on, guys. 
yeah, the problem with that show was the match quality and like booking decisions are really strange. Like, I mean, they have this weird non-match with Chavo Guerrero where he's insane, mm-hmm. apparently trying to take the TV title, which already is in a weird status because it was supposedly granted via power of attorney to Stevie Ray. Yeah, that's odd. Because Booker T was legit injured and they didn't want to end his title reign with another tournament <laughs> for once. Uh, and, and now we see why WCW regularly does tournaments because all their other ideas are stupid. Correct. There's something that doesn't really matter on the show, like Mongo and Brian Adams and stuff like that. But then there's stuff that could be good and should be better, like I mentioned, the Battle Royal, the booking all over the place with that, and so many talent squeezed into it, and it affects the rest of the show because so much of the talent is back-ended in this terrible match. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the worst show in the series, following that logic, is 99. It's the worst show quality-wise, for sure. They even lose little things they actually gained. Like, they don't have the personalized license plate intros. Yes. They just have the same generic one. Because mm-hmm. the previous show, they, they would change them based on the person. Like, they'd have the colors of them, or they have something else. Actually, um, the personalized ones are 97. Oh, I'm sorry. The generic ones are 98, and then 99, I believe they lose them entirely. Oh, there you go. So, it's even worse than anything. Yeah. But yeah, obviously, just match quality is bad, and it's weird because so much of this is like, let's build this new generation of talent up here. Let's have DDP make Benoit be like the next big thing in wrestling with how his match is booked. Then let's end the show with Hogan doing his same tie routine from 1983 and acting surprised how this goes in 1999. Yeah. So yeah, that's definitely the worst show. All right. Ready to see if we're the same? Sure. For me, the best show is Hogwild 1996. Mm-hmm. So for me, the first was the best of the bunch. Admittedly, it's probably at least in part because everything felt the freshest to me. Right. But it also has two of my favorite matches from the series, a generally solid card otherwise, with the exception, admittedly, of its main event, and every single one of my favorite promo segments. Yep. It's a very entertaining, fun show with some very notable and important moments on it. Second best, so we are swapping our positions, is Road Wild 1997. Mm Mm-hmm. To me, this felt like an imitation of 1996's offering, repeating a lot of the same themes. Taken purely on its own, it's nevertheless a solid show with a collection of acceptable to good matches and some excellent work by the commentary team. It just never quite reaches the heights of 96 for me in match quality, and the lack of promo content really hurt it as well. Agreed, yeah. Uh, Second worst? Mm -hmm. Road Wild 1998. Yeah. WCW got the set right this year, where just about everything else was a downgrade. There's a couple good matches on this one. In fact, it does have one of my matches of the series, but there's also several bad or at least dull ones, including an agonizing middle section of the show filled with bad comedy and disappointments. Yeah. It's capped off by a just plain strange main event that, though it definitely went better than I had feared, is still not good. And finally... Worst, I will totally agree, Road Wild 1999. Mm -hmm. By far the worst show of the series for me. 1998 is bad, but not even close to as bad as 99. Mm -hmm. Shoddy booking, repetitive spots, sloppy performances, mostly useless pre-match promos that take too much time because the crowd keeps interrupting. Look, there's decent or even good stuff to be found here, notably Page versus Benoit, but you have to work 
hard to stay interested enough in the show to find it. And then just when you think you've got some hope, the last four matches of the show happen and just kill the thing dead and dance on its grave. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, I know one of them you found to be a little bit better than me, but at least the the last three matches for you. Yeah. Yeah. Kill it dead and dance. That's great. No. Yeah. I, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't like, yes, that I don't put Sid and Sting in that category, but I I agree with the rest of it. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And, and I, and I, and to clarify, I see why you put Sid and Sting there. Yeah. 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 And, and to be clear, like I do behind the scenes actually have like a ranking system for it. Sid and Sting does not get the same rating as Rodman and Savage and uh, Rick Steiner and Goldberg. Right. But it's still poor to me. No, yeah. So it it kind of starts the decline of the show again, and then the other ones complete it, kill it, bury it, and dance on his grave. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, it was interesting. We we almost almost one hundred percent agreed on that. Yeah. But uh, just switched our top ones. Yeah, I was pretty sure. Yeah, I, I was ninety nine percent sure you'd be at ninety six straight through, and I was like, I think ninety seven slightly more realized as a whole theme wise. I, I can certainly see. I I think. This is, again, we're going back to what we said earlier. Yeah. If you watch it straight through just as a series on its own, I think 96 feels the freshest, and then it gets progressively less fresh from there. Mm. But if you did have time between them, um, I did try to look at it that way in my rate rankings as well. I don't know if I was fully successful or not, but just looking at the amount of stuff that I've highlighted earlier on my awards that's from 96, I still had to give the edge to 96. So I think that was that yeah. was part of it for me as well. Yeah, they're, they're, I I don't think either one is an invalid no. look at it. No, no, that's the thing. Yeah, we've given our awards and analysis, but there's one more thing we'd like to do here to have some fun with us: our ultimate wild cards. So here's the rules: each of us designs a card featuring eight matches drawn from the actual Hog and Road Wild matches. We can only use each performer as a competitor once. So someone can show up as a manager or a commentator or interference or some other role in other matches, but you can only use them once as an actual competitor. So for instance, if you pick Jericho versus Guerrera from Road Wild 1998, you can't use any match where either one was a competitor elsewhere. Not a problem for Guerrera. But you can still use Dean Malenko in another match since he's only a referee in that one. You can use any match in any position. You're not required to pick an actual main event for your main event. Al, which one of us you want to go first? I can go first. Okay, go ahead. So I don't have this in, in order. I was As I was writing, I just wanted to just write as I was thinking of. So don't think of this as an actual like straight match order. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I will, I will decide what I think my main event is. Okay. And my one does involve tweaking of one aspect of it, but I can make it work. Okay. All right. So going in no particular order, I have Randy Savage versus the giant from 97 show. Okay. That was really enjoyable. That really builds up the giant for future storylines in this alternate universe. We live in when this happens. I had the Mexican death match for Mysterio and Conan from 97 as well. All right. So I see how I, mine says I have a lot of 97s on here. <laughs> there you go. Uh, one I have on here that is tweaked booking wise Due to another match being on here, I have DP versus Chris Benoit from the 99 show. Okay. To make my work contextually, it's not a U.S. title match. Okay. It's a number one contenders match for the world title. That works. I have the tag team match of Lex Luger and Sting versus The Outsiders from 1996. Okay. I enjoyed that one a lot. That could be a tag title thing, but that really doesn't matter. It's more important that they're fighting to dominance or what have you. Okay. The reason why I had to rebook the 
importance of DP Benoit because I have Ric Flair versus Eddie Guerrero. Oh, okay. Which is still for the U.S. title. All right. I figure a situation where Flair is holding a, a title he's very established with, he held that a lot in the 80s before mm-hmm. he became world champion Ric Flair, really helps build up Eddie Guerrero. So I wouldn't take that aspect away from him. I just said it. I figured the DP Benoit match feels like trying to crown the next contender anyways. So making it that way makes more sense for me. Okay. Just because, one, it is good, but also I want to get in their presence. I have Bedusel versus Bull Nakano. Okay. 96 show. So I described it as the winner smashes the other's bike match. I don't know <laughs> if that's really how you call it, but that's what I call it. <laughs> Even if oddly booked for the ending, it's still a very adorable match. Mm-hmm. And again, the only one that thematically fits this idea, the concept of the series. So Right. Definitely. Yeah, that is, that is very true. Yeah. Yeah, it's also the only one that features nunchucks, as Dusty Rhodes would say. Yes, that's true. I've also got the Ravens rules match between Saturn, Canyon, and Raven from 98 show. Okay. To give you a little bit of everything on a wrestling show, which is always good, you want some nice sort of necessarily hardcore in the sense of cracks, goals, and, you know, rough balls and tables and such, but just so the more chaotic action to contrast, say, a Guerrero flare match or DP Benoit match. Or any other match like that. So it's something that's different. It's not putting you know, eight tag matches on a show. Right. And lastly, again, not in order of where it's on the card, I have Juventud Guerrero versus Chris Jericho for the Cruiserweight title with okay. Dean Malenko as referee. Uh, as far as what would be my main event on these, I'm trying to torn. I feel like it should be DP Benoit if it's really, if I'm doing a show with no Hogan as champion, mm-hmm. if that's what's going on in this this point if in your view that's you had said that's number one contender for the world title so yeah. that would make sense as a main event yeah i was going back for between that or the Randy savage giant match but yeah i'd say yeah if that's the number one contenders match that's number one okay because it's it's either title match or fighting for the title match so yeah that's mine all right so my card and, and mine i do have in order okay my first match opener is Ultimo Dragon versus Rey Mysterio Jr. from Hogwild 1996. An excellent opener becomes an excellent opener. Fair enough. Number two, the Steiner Brothers versus Harlem Heat from Hogwild 1996. Hopefully the Earth 9699 version has a less uncomfortable crowd reaction. Yeah, that's hope, yeah. But it was a good match overall. I, I thought I remember really liking the Heat's teamwork during it. Mm-hmm. Number three, Kurt Hennig versus Diamond Dallas Page from Road Wild 1997. On Earth 9699, they switched the order of the Henning Plexus to make a little bit more sense. Yeah, that'd be good. Number four, uh, like you said, it's important to have some variety. So the Ravens rules, Raven versus Saturn versus Canyon from Road Wild 1998 mm-hmm. uh, to get a little bit of uh, no DQ craziness on there. Mm-hmm. Number five, Eddie Guerrero versus Ric Flair from Hog Wild 1996. I thought that Ric Flair building up uh, younger performers was an important part of this series. I wanted to get that on there. Mm-hmm. Number six, Juventud Guerrera versus Chris Jericho with Dean Malenko as guest referee from Road Wild 1998. Uh, I also adore that match. And on my version, that leads directly to Chris Benoit versus Dean Malenko from Hog Wild 1996. On Earth 9699, Chris Jericho causes Malenko's loss to Benoit to get revenge for the previous match. Ah. Okay. And finally, we have, as our main event, Sting and Lex Luger versus the Outsiders from Hogwild 1996. So yeah, there's no world title match on my card either, but this is a big-time WCW versus NWO match, so it still feels like a worthy main event. Mm-hmm. Hopefully on Earth 9699, they get the ending timing just a tad better. 
Yeah. Or maybe not. That was hilarious. <laughs> I will say it's interesting. I know why we didn't, but neither one of us took the chance to have the number six match be Ric Flair versus six. <laughs> I considered putting that one on there, but I think Guerrero's is the stronger of the two Ric yeah. Flair matches for yeah. for that purpose. The six one is not bad. No, no. Let's, no. let's be clear. But yeah, that that is funny. We, we both could have taken that chance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Other than the, the one timing botch with like the suplex, that match is really, of the two is stronger. Yeah. Yeah. I think we we both had good cards. And to your earlier point on a lot of yours being from 97, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five of my eight matches are from 96. So I think that explains why, again, 96 was my show and 97 was your show for top. (laughs) Fair enough, yeah. You ready for this, Al? I think I am. Now it is time for some re-gimmicking. So each of us has been given a match from each other's card, and now... We have to give that match a new gimmick or stipulation that would turn it into something new. We provided our matches to each other ahead of time, but we haven't heard each other's re-gimmicking, so this should be interesting. Mm-hmm. So, Al, do you want to hear the one I've re-gimmicked for you first, or the one that you've re-gimmicked for me first? You go, I always go first. You go first. Okay. So, for me, Al provided Conan versus Mysterio in a Mexican death match from Road Wild 1997. Mm-hmm. All right, so Ray is coming to this one with a lingering knee injury, as the commentators point out extensively. And we need to even things up a bit. So this is a crutch match. Okay. Now, that's not a match where crutches are legal weapons, not quite anyway. No, the rule for this match is that both competitors have one leg tied up in bent position, unusable. So they have to support themselves with at least one crutch anytime that they're in standing position. They can use two if they want but they have to use at least one. Okay. If you ever undo the leg straps that are holding your leg in place, you're disqualified. If you hop around for more than a five count without using your crutch, you're disqualified. Crutches are legal weapons, but only when used to replace a leg in moves. For instance, a standing side crutch or a drop crutch or a springboard crutch drop or Ray's favorite, the crutch Yeah. Yeah. If you just swing the crutch at the other guy without mimicking a leg-based move, that's a DQ. I'm picturing Ray trying to do his uh, Bronco Buster hopping that way. With the <laughs> Fortunately, crutch. he's not doing that at this point. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Still funny visual. Conan still ends up winning this one by hooking all of the crutches through each other around Mysterio in an improvised and very complicated submission hold, making sure to sit down nearby so he doesn't face the five count. All right. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't go the obvious route and just make it a Mexican hat match. Yeah, yeah, I I avoided that. (laughs) For Al, I provided Chris Jericho versus Juventud Guerrera, guest referee Dean Malenko from Road Wild 1998. So Al, what you got for me? Ah, yes. I have turned it into the Mil Bodegas match. Okay. Which is Spanish for a thousand holds. Ah. At the request of Dean Malenko, guest referee, the title match is all about wrestling holds and math. Okay. Each competitor is given the complete list of 1,000 holds to memorize in the build-up to this show. Each move they do successfully is then added to their score. The score is based on where they are placed in the list of 1,000 holds. Oh. The match takes place in five-minute rounds. At the end of each round, their score is tallied up and the person with the most points wins. Okay, I like it. Doing, example, a Fujiwara armbar, which is 293, gets you more points than a standard armbar, which is 215. Okay, okay. 
Now, um, does this use uh, Dean Malenko approved list or does it use Chris Jericho's list they brought out of Nitro where an arm bar could get you like a million points because it shows up everywhere? Well, this is at the request of Dean Malenko. So oh, okay. it's the official. He, he, he de-cheatifies it. It's the official Book of a Thousand Holds. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yes. Presumably he worked on that with Mike Tanay because Tanay's got his dictionary of pinning somebody. Yes. <laughs> this match, by the way, works really well with modern format changes with visuals where they often have to fill out the sidebars for widescreen. Right, right. You replace the blank bars of widescreen with the running tally list of the There map. you go, yeah. So you go, oh, he hit this, and you can even you can like keep track of it as you watch the Absolutely, map. that's that. Like, Ooh, he did this move, that's worth more points. That would be cool. I mean, you could even distribute, you know, sheets of holds to the crowd so they could yeah. keep track themselves throughout the match. Yeah. I, I'll tell you, I, I wish New Gen Podcast was still uh, still running because I would send that to them. <laughs> Paul Scriven's huge math guy would yeah. love that match. <laughs> yeah, so that is all based on this non-existent list, but like not just like trying to do as many moves as you can. It's which number they are in the ranking. So you got to figure out which move is, is ranked for a thousand. Just try and do that a couple times. Yeah, yeah, that's that, a good bumper right there. That's true. Yeah, but that's presumably the hardest hold to do. So maybe if you do you know move number 750 and do it three times you can exceed someone who managed to do a thousand but only twice exactly yeah there's a lot of strategy to that you know and of course blink is a guest referee because he knows all thousand holes oh right yeah obviously. he doesn't need the list yeah he's doing all that in his head he has it in his computer brain yeah yeah because he has a robot yes <laughs> he's not terry taylor the computerized man from the 1990s that's but true. he is close yes yeah and that wraps up our coverage of Hog slash Road Wild. So, what have we got coming up next? Mm-hmm. Well, next up is our 50th episode. I didn't think we'd make it past five. So <laughs> 50 is pretty impressive. I, I can't believe we've made it to 50. It's definitely mind-boggling. Right. We wanted to do something unusual and special for number 50. And I've been wanting to head back to the 80s after so much time in the NWO era recently. So we are. For a look at 1988's AWA Super Clash 3. A lot of familiar faces show up on that show. Mm -hmm. Some of which we have not seen in a very long time. Yeah. We have Jeff Jarrett. Okay, that's more recent. Mm -hmm. Wayne Bloom. Yeah. DDP in manager mode. Oh, yeah. Medusa. Ron Garvin, Sergeant Slaughter, Wahoo McDaniel. Oh boy. Manny Fernandez. Yeah. The Rock and Roll Express. And at long last, making his dread return, the Boogie Woogie Man, Jimmy Valiant. <laughs> Presumably he's fresh from losing yet another Loser Leaves Town match and returning anyway. Yes. <laughs> I guess I must have said his name three times over a period, and now he has appeared. He's, he's, he's back. He's back. We've summoned him. <laughs> yes. It'll be interesting to see him again, though, genuinely, because I recall not liking him at all at first. And then by the end, I was like, okay, he has gotten better, but I'm still kind of tired of him. Yeah. But we've now gone for, let's see, he had like four matches in the first series. So I think we've now gone for 46 episodes without seeing him. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see if... He's one in better mode still, yeah. and two tolerable because I haven't seen him in so long. Mm-hmm. I believe we also, not to spoil too much, mm-hmm. we get to see more of the extended Guerrero family as well. I believe so, yes. Yeah. I think we see Chavo Sr., right? Yes. Yeah. 
So that'll be interesting to see. And and of course, I believe Hector's on there as well. Yes. We haven't seen Hector since 84, right? Or 85? It's either 84 or 85. I can't remember which. But yeah, it's been a while since we saw the guy that looks almost identical to Eddie Guerrero. It's the, yeah, it's the Stark Age show where if you leave the ring, it's the Blake void of, of <laughs> yes. deep space. The abyss beyond. <laughs> yes. Don't do a dive outside. You may never return. Yes. After that, we're going to make good on a promise that we made on Road Wild 1999. The commentators let us know on that show that two wrestlers on that show featured in films that year. Mm-hmm. And we got curious about just how featured each guy was. So we're going to take a look for ourselves. First up, we will review First Daughter, starring Diamond Dallas Page. And then second, we'll do Universal Soldier The Return, starring Goldberg. And then our actual bridge show. Mm-hmm. It's a very long bridge this time. Yes. You may have noticed that despite the fact that WCW was still around in August of 2000, there is no Road Wild 2000. WCW decided not to go back to Sturgis in 2000, instead heading off to Vancouver for New Blood Rising. Mm -hmm. This show is pretty infamous. Yeah. Featuring, among other things, Judy Bagwell on a forklift. (laughs) Yes. Mud Wrestling. And a particularly noteworthy triple threat match between Kevin Nash, Scott Steiner, and Goldberg. It didn't feel quite right to call it part of the Hog or Road Wild series, but it still feels like we need to do it now to actually complete the series, if that makes sense. It does, yes. And now, our next series. Just when you thought it was safe to go back to the beach... WCW Beach Blast. This summer, beat the heat with a barrage of buff buds and bodacious babes. Because WCW is cruising through the party down on the Gulf Coast. We're talking a sizzling slam fest. One huge scene, a mega rager. It's totally featured. WCW Beach Blast. Beat the heat live. Saturday, June 20th. Be there only on pay-per-view. Call your local cable operator for availability. Next up is the combination of Beach Blast and Bash at the Beach. Despite a slightly bigger title change this time, we're considering these all the same series, as they're all midsummer shows based around a beach theme. Running from 1992 through 2000, they cover a total of nine shows and feature some of the most notable events in WCW history, mm-hmm. and Hulk Hogan's history besides. Yes. 1994's offering gives us Hogan's first WCW pay-per-view match, 1996 gives us the formation of the NWO, and 2000 gives us Hogan's final WCW appearance. It literally bookends his career. Yes. And if memory serves, 99 gives us a new competitor for worst match of the podcast so far. Uh, yeah, there, there's, some, there's some interesting ones on here. So uh, you want to hear what other stuff shows up on this series, Al? Sure. So we know what to look forward to. All right. We got Ricky Steamboat versus Rick Rude. Nice. Sting and Davy Boy Smith versus the Masters of the Power Bomb. Hopefully, we also get to review the mini movie WCW made to promote that one. We'll make sure that happens. Don't worry. Vader versus Guardian Angel in a rematch from one of your favorites from Spring Stampede, Al. Oh yeah, admittedly with a bit of a gimmick change there. A little bit, but it'll be interesting to see if they uh, pull off something just as good this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Diamond Dallas Page versus Dave Sullivan. Pray for Diamond Dallas Page there. Yes. 
The Nasty Boys versus Public Enemy in a dog collar match. Luger and Giant versus Hogan and Rodman. Yay. Yay. Yeah. Diamond Dallas Page and Carl Malone versus Hogan and Rodman again. <laughs> Yay. Because I needed more Rodman matches. Uh huh. The Junkyard Invitational. The Graveyard Match. Oh boy. I tell you, we will have some interesting stuff on this one, and never has the word interesting carried more weight. Yeah, if you thought any series should feature a graveyard match and a junkyard match, you thought, oh, obviously Bash at the Beach. Right, yeah, the beach theme show. No, no, no. What beach are you going to? Yeah, oh my gosh. Apparently for the graveyard match, you're like the beach of Hades. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Not on the nice shores of the River Styx, just yes. looking out over the lost souls going by. Yes, exactly. You know, I mean, if you get a good, good enough uh, grouping of them, they actually become quite a nice wave to surf on them. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's kind of disrespectful, though, so... A little bit, yeah. Admittedly. <laughs> so, again, our upcoming releases will be... In December, our 50th episode, Super Clash 3. In January, First Daughter. In February, Universal Soldier The Return. In March, New Blood Rising. And finally, in April, we will start our new series with Beach Blast 1992. So... Hang 10, folks. Surf's up. Cowabunga and other assorted surfer sayings. Those are all the ones I know. Uh, Big Wednesday? Is that is that one? That's a movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's about surfing. Okay. We'll go with that. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. The top three positions don't change if we use only initial referee appearances. Henson loses one replacement appearance to hit 26, but Robinson also loses two to hit 25, matching. Oops, I may have that slightly off. <laughs> so I may re-record this later because if Robinson loses two, he hits 20. Oh, yeah, I typed it wrong. Okay, that's all. I figured it out.